And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, these days about anything can happen, and you should see the preparation for this show. Everything is, in fact, happening. We have been beset by a number of very interesting technical problems over the last week or two. And at the first break, I'm going to take some time and describe, A, what they are, and B, how you can help. Because, yes, you, the audience, the people all over the world who listen to this show, which is unique. I mean, in the world of the overuse of that word, this show is unique, as you're going to hear this morning. So at about the first break, I'm going to tell you what you can do to help ameliorate some of the really bizarre technical issues that have bedeviled us for the last week or two which some of you have kind of uh, been wondering about and wonder why we just don't fix things. Well, that's a kind of a long tale, and we will uh, get into that at about the half-hour break. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to try to set the scene for some very interesting additional information, which is coming in from missions, Mars, moon missions that are literally all over the world converging on the moon for the first time in our lifetime. And when I say for the first time in our lifetime, I really mean that because at the moment we have two missions that are en route to the moon. One is supposed to arrive in November, mid-November, November 13th to be exact. The other, uh, lagging about a month behind, is going to arrive on the uh, 16th of December. And uh, that one is one we're going to kind of focus a bit on tonight to set the scene for what the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team members are going to present, which is remarkable artifacts, not above the moon, like I've been dealing with for the last couple of weeks, but literally on the surface of the moon. And uh, they come from a variety of investigators, from a variety of locations, and they have a variety of configurations. So I hope by the end of the evening you will be well edified as to what, in fact, we are looking at on the surface of our nearest planetary neighbor. When I say that, I say that with all due respect, because the moon, if it really orbited the sun all by itself and supposed to uh, circling the Earth, it would be considered a planet. I mean, it's bigger than Pluto, which is called a a dwarf planet. Um, It's uh, about uh, two-thirds the size of Ganymede which is the largest moon of Jupiter, which if it was orbiting the sun, it would be considered a planet larger somewhat than Mercury. So nomenclature over the centuries has kind of drifted as we've learned more information. And tonight we're going to be talking about the missions to the moon, which in fact um, are in a very curious state of abeyance. So let me try to go through this uh, in, in somewhat chronological order. If you go to radio with pictures and the way you get there is you click on tonight's banner which says make no wine before it's time artemis part two and you click on that banner that will take you from the main page the home page at uh, the other side of midnight.com to the guest page click on that banner that will take you to the uh, guest page click on my name under it where it says um uh guest page fast links to items Click on my name and you'll see first item. That's the Artemis One 
SLS-Orion spacecraft combination. Artemis, as you know, is the first return by NASA of a humans to the moon in about 50 years. The last mission to the moon was in December of 1972, and for all those decades since, no human beings have ventured near the moon. In coming weeks, by the way, we're going to be looking at this from a somewhat different perspective because that interregnum in and of itself is really highly anomalous. And uh, there are some folks who we're going to be talking to on air who have some very interesting theories and ideas for why that 50-year, half a century interregnum in human visits to the moon uh, actually took place. But that is kind of premature because tonight I want to set the scene because coming up next week, I think Wednesday, which is the 21st, yeah, Wednesday, yeah 21st, um, as you know, NASA has tried two launch attempts of the Artemis One mission, which will be an unmanned mission of the human manned spaceflight um, spacecraft, the Orion uh, command module replacing the much older and much smaller Apollo command module. And it will go on a 40-plus day mission up to and around the moon in a very extended orbit, extending out some 39,000 miles from the center of the moon. The uh, Apollo astronauts were about 60 miles up. So this is a very different orbit. Um, It will take weeks to make one orbit. And they're going to make one and a half, I think, and then they will come home. The spacecraft, unlike Apollo, which was rated for just a couple of weeks, um, can safely carry uh, four astronauts for 21 days. And in fact, they are going to be stressing uh, the, the human part of it for almost twice that amount of time to make sure that they ring out all the problems. And that's what a test flight is for. So. They've been trying now for several weeks. There have been two previous launch attempts, both of which have been terminated because of, you know, confounding leaks in the hydrogen uh, refueling system, which fills those that large tank in the base of the rocket, providing the fuel to mix with the oxidizer, liquid oxygen, that actually burns in the four engines that produces thrust and helps inject the spacecraft into a uh, lunar transfer orbit. All of that's going to be tested in terms of the loading of liquid hydrogen and oxygen uh, this Wednesday on the 21st. There'll be a full, what they call, tanking test, and they will test to see if the leak seals they replaced uh, last weekend, in fact, have been replaced, have been successfully repaired, and they will be ready for a launch no earlier than September 27th. That is the new intended launch date for Artemis 1. Now, that again, due to problems that we cannot foresee at the moment, that could slip. Uh, there's always weather. I mean, weather at the Cape in late summer, particularly when you're, uh, uh, you know, just beginning hurricane season, um, that could be a, a serious problem. So, Whether notwithstanding, we will find out whether the fixes have been fixed and whether the uh, spacecraft system, the um, space launch system, that's what SLS stands for, is ready to go. Item number two. Now, this is getting really, really, really weird. As you know, um, a couple of months ago, the uh, NASA people launched 
uh, a small satellite, weighs about 55 pounds, is about the size of a microwave oven, and they sent it on a very long ballistic trajectory, which is very low energy, takes about four months to go from low Earth orbit to the moon. And it's supposed to be injected into this very unusual retrograde lunar orbit around the moon um, on November 13th. Well, in order to get there, it has to undergo what are called mid-course corrections. Every few weeks, based on tracking from the ground, radio antennas and Doppler and all that, um, they give instructions to the onboard computer to fire little thrusters from engines on board, fueled with tanks on board, and they accelerate or decelerate by a few you know, inches per second, adjusting the trajectory so that they wind up in the correct geometry and location to enter lunar orbit on the 13th of November. <clears throat> well, the third one, the third of these mid-course corrections, took place last week on the 8th, and then something radically wrong took place. And the Capstone spacecraft, and Capstone is a uh, acronym, and it, uh, believe me, you do not want to uh, know what the acronym stands for. It takes you two days to pronounce it. So the Capstone mission, which kind of is a capstone for the uh, pre-Artemis mission preparations, um, is currently in limbo. It is known where it is. It seems to be on the correct trajectory uh, for its lunar or other mid-course corrections looming up ahead. But the spacecraft is tumbling. And because it's tumbling and it's powered by the sun, the power potential of the spacecraft is hovering near negative and it actually was when they recontacted it after this problem struck last week it was negative meaning they were draining the batteries faster than the solar panels as they're moving you know rotating relative to the sun could recharge them and of course if that goes on long enough you drain the batteries you have no more energy you can't do anything your spacecraft is dead it almost died but they saved it just in time and now they're assessing uh what went wrong they're going to try to fix by remote control what went wrong, and then we'll hopefully be able to then, you know, keep it on course for its arrival at the moon in about a month and a half. Now, item number three. While all this is going on, Artemis 1 is waiting to launch and Capstone is tumbling. The South Koreans, as you know, uh, a few weeks ago, they also launched their first unmanned spacecraft to the moon. And this spacecraft is equipped with very interesting instruments. We're going to go through those tonight as we talk with our other guests. And, and um, you'll be fascinated to learn what the real purpose of some of these instruments turns out to be, which in fact is not what the South Koreans in their press releases have been advertising. Gosh, where have we heard that before? Anyway, item number four. Um, while all this is going on, on the red planet on Mars, uh, NASA's Perseverance rover, the second rover kind of in the same class as Curiosity, which landed many years ago at another place on Mars, the Perseverance rover people held a major press conference uh, this week, and they announced that they have found a treasure trove of organic matter that could, in fact, help them to ultimately determine if life ever existed on Mars. 
Now, the caveat is that they cannot tell, they are telling us, with the instrumentation onboard Perseverance. All that does is kind of pre-screen the samples, and then they drill cores. They put the cores of rock and soil into little titanium tubes. They're going to cache the tubes in one kind of cairn, and a future mission, which will be sponsored jointly by NASA and by ESA, the European Space Agency, sometimes toward the late 2020s, is supposed to go to Mars, send a robot down to the surface of uh, uh, Jezero Crater again, uh, find the cache of samples that Perseverance is going to deposit on the surface at a predetermined location, put them on board a, a rocket designed to get them from the Mars surface into Mars orbit, where they will rendezvous with a mothership that's been waiting in Mars orbit that will then leave Mars orbit and come back to Earth. And we will have samples, according to this plan, of Perseverance has been drilling and coring and storing uh, in Jezero Crater in 2022. We will have those to analyze in 2033. So um, 11 years. That seems to me to be a very, 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 very long time. Anyway, um, be that as it may, uh, what I'd like to do now, because we're going to focus the rest of our attention tonight on the moon, uh, I would like to introduce our panelists. Uh, we have Ron Gerbron with us, who is our uh, um, polymath and generalist, and who spends a lot of his time uh, looking at the moon and looking at Mars and doing very interesting and very important imaging work. And he has presented some very intriguing information about the moon from the Japanese unmanned mission, the Kayugu mission, also known as Selene. Um, I think Selene was the Roman goddess of the moon, but we'll find out. Anyway, Ron is with us. We also have Andrew Curry. Andrew is an artist. He does storyboards for Hollywood and commercials. He's done a tremendous amount of work for the Enterprise mission. He's part of the imaging team. And you can read all their detailed bios on the website, so I'm not going to go into them now. Um, we've also got uh, uh, Robert Morningstar. He is with us. Robert is a, um, well, he's a civilian intelligence analyst an investigative journalist and a psychotherapist currently living where he's lived as long as I've known him in New York City. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. He is a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy and was a New York State Region Scholar at Fordham University, where he re received a degree in psychology. And while at Fordham in the late 60s, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. And I don't think I've left anybody out. So without further ado, let me open the mic. And is everybody here? I'm here. I'm present. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. <laughs> uh, Ready and waiting. Okay. Um, what I wanted to do tonight, before we kind of swing into our conversation, is to set the scene. So I want everyone to go back to Radio with Pictures, go to my items, and I want to talk specifically about uh, the Denuri mission. That's the South Korean mission. And I want to start with item number five in my uh, section of radio pictures. This is a map 
that the NASA people, the Artemis people, posted a few weeks ago of the planned um, South Pole landing sites for the first crewed mission of the Artemis program, which will be Artemis number three, to take place probably sometime in 2025, according to the revised calendar. And then roughly one year in, at one-year intervals, they will send, NASA will send a new crew who will spend several weeks on the lunar surface before returning to the Earth. And ultimately, the, gale, the, the, uh, the goal of the uh, Artemis program is to establish the first moon base at the South Pole. Now, why the South Pole? Well, that goes into a little bit of history, because during the unmanned NASA lacrosse mission, which went to the moon in 2009, one of its objectives was to uh, do measurements of the South Pole to see if the inferences from earlier missions that the South and North Pole of the moon are basically coal traps, meaning they are locations on the lunar surface where because of the tilt of the moon to its orbit around the Earth and the Earth's orbit around the sun, these polar regions never see sunlight. There are some craters at both poles that never see sunlight and therefore are permanently cold traps, meaning that they are so cold, they're actually colder than the sun side of Pluto, some four billion miles in the outer solar system away from the sun. But measured temperatures are that the coldest physical locations in the solar system, colder than the night side of Mercury, colder than the sun side of Pluto, and even the night side of Pluto, because Pluto rotates every six days, and the, uh, the polar regions have not seen sun, we believe, in millions, if not billions of years, at least that's the NASA model. They are the coldest places you can reach in the solar system, and the model is that they have trapped all kinds of gases and volatiles and interesting compounds in a permanent frozen set of glaciers that could be mixed with dust, they could be separate in terms of ice slabs, layers of dust and ice. We really don't know. So NASA is intending, uh, before Artemis lands in 2025, to send an unmanned spacecraft um, down to the surface of the South Pole to pick a landing site appropriate to the manned mission following in a couple of years. And the locations of that human mission, which will carry the first woman and the first person of color, according to uh, the NASA PR people, will be in one of those blue areas, which are <clears throat> lit, but are easy access to the areas of the craters that they're adjacent to that are permanently unlit. So the idea is to build your, to basically land where it's light and then drive to where it's dark, do your sampling and come back and then bring all the stuff home and see how much... Uh, a reservoir of water and other volatiles we have at the uh, lunar south pole. That's the idea. Now, prior to doing that, the current South Korean unmanned mission, this 1,500-pound spacecraft uh, called Denuri, which means in Korean, it's actually a compound of two Korean words. One is enjoy and the other is moon. So the name of the mission is enjoy moon. Well, if you click on number six, you'll see a, an enlargement of all the instruments 
that Denuri is going to carry to the moon into this uh, very low altitude, 60 plus mile uh, circular lunar orbit that is basically at right angles to the equator. So it it covers both poles during a, a couple hour lunar orbit. It's at 60 miles altitude, takes about two hours uh, to orbit the moon. We know that obviously from the Apollo uh, mission experience. So over those two hours, they will cross over both poles. And the idea is the instrumentation on board the Denuri spacecraft will look down and will sample at a different set of wavelengths, ranging from gamma rays all the way to visible light. They will look at with cameras and they will sample with a magnetic field detector and they will look at gamma ray emissions at the surface of the moon passing about 60 miles beneath them. Now, the idea is that as they pass over the South Pole, remember they're in a polar orbit, so if the moon is revolving around the Earth in a month and rotating on its axis in a month, then in about a month, they will be back to relatively the same orbit that they began, and so they will do a series of, of polar scans as the moon rotates beneath the orbit of the spacecraft, and that way they will map at the poles every square inch and they're going to have very high resolution on the cameras so they literally will be mapping down to the level of feet if not inches there however is a problem and that comes up in item number seven because the lacrosse mission back in 2009 carried a visible light camera carried an infrared camera that had uh, tunability and several different wavelengths all the way from uh, uh you know basically very red red light, you know, near infrared, all the way to far infrared, which is thermal. Um, and in addition to that camera, they also had a visible light camera, which only recently I discovered, kind of by accident, because NASA didn't publish this data back in 2009, that the camera was a color camera. So when you looked at the initial images that NASA put out, they looked like black and white images. And this was 2009. And we weren't really kind of on the ball much, and I never thought to turn up the saturation on the images coming from the visible light camera on Lacrosse until I went through a whole bunch of other data in prepping my lunar shows for the last month or so. And I realized that as, as one of the things that NASA does is they have very elegantly kind of sidetracked you so you don't focus on what you really should focus on and you miss obvious stuff. So when I went back to my archive and I basically brought up some of the lacrosse visible imaging and I simply upped the gain on the color channel, lo and behold, what appeared to be a featureless black and white image with, you know, bright lit crater rims and dark shadows and, you know, the usual thing you see in amateurs taking photographs of the moon. In fact, the images are very colorful and it's obvious in looking at the images that we're looking at the spectral refractions, the differential prismatic effects of light being refracted by the glass, by the domes, by what's above the surface of the moon, which was first photographed by the CIA on the film that I was given many years ago, back in the 1960s. So if you look at number seven, this is what a stretched version, a color stretched version of the so-called black and white visible light camera image of the South Pole looks like when you simply turn up the saturation. 
Now, the little arrow there is showing one of the locations, Cabius, where the NASA people are intending to potentially land one of the Artemis missions, one of the early missions. If you go to number eight, this is now the Denuri uh, mission, which is, as I said, en route. We'll get there mid-December, go into a 60-mile lunar orbit, and it carries two specific cameras that are exquisite for their capabilities and totally incompatible with what NASA and what the South Koreans are telling us the images are going to be used for. Let me say that again. The, the Nuri spacecraft carries two amazingly highly sensitive cameras, both of which will be incredibly useful, but in a way that no official proclamation by either space agency, either the South Korean space agency or NASA, have given even a hint to. Let me talk about the so-called shadow cam. The shadow cam and the geometry of what it's going to do is basically shown there in number eight, um, is going to, from the 60-mile altitude, look down with a very large telescope. If you go back to item number six, you can see where it's there. It's basically almost the width of the length, I'm sorry, of the entire Dunary spacecraft. It's a very powerful, highly focused telescope. At the business end of it, the detector end, it carries a CCD, that's charged coupled device camera, which now NASA is saying in their official statements about the capabilities will be something like 800 times more sensitive than the most sensitive camera on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter or on La Crosse. 800 times more sensitive. Why are they putting that incredible degree of sensitivity in the Denuri shadow cam? Because the idea is they're going to be taking pictures, images of the shadows of these permanently shadowed craters, which obviously have rims which stick up into sunlight, so only the bottoms are in permanent shadow. The idea is that the sunlight scattering from the surrounding crater rims will shine into the bottoms of the craters with very faint scattered reflected sunlight. And by putting in lunar orbit a camera 800 times more sensitive than anything sent to the moon before, a digital high-resolution you know, uh, color camera. They intend to photograph the topography and the layout and boulders and any obstacles on the crater floor and then transmit that information to the Artemis mission team so they can plan their landings in these permanently shadowed regions accordingly. There's also another camera on board, which apparently is built by the South Koreans, and it's a wide-angle, very sensitive polarimetry camera. Now, what is polarimetry? Well, light, in addition to coming in separate frequencies, which is basically color, it also comes in different polarizations, meaning that the vibration of the electromagnetic uh, energy is in one plane and if it rotates completely in a circle it's called circular polarization and any detector any camera any lens can pick it up but in certain circumstances light when it reflects off a surface is plane polarized meaning the bounce creates a plane geometry 
to the amount of energy coming off the surface as a reflection. And if you have a camera which is tuned with proper polarization filters, you can see what that angle of polarization is. And in fact, that will tell you what the surface material is made of. Well, not exactly. Anyway, I'm going to leave number nine for when we come back from the break, because we literally are at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Okay, I promised you at the top that I would explain kind of what's been going on. Uh, last week, we had a major lightning strike. I'm in New Mexico, which is probably the worst or the best uh, lightning capital of the planet. I haven't checked lately, but we have an awful lot of lightning strikes. And during late summer, particularly during monsoon season, lightning can strike all over. Well, something came down less than a thousand feet from the house, knocked out everything, blew the entire neighborhood, and finally, when I was able to get to a landline, I have preserved a landline for just these occasions. The power company said cheerfully in their little computerized voice, power will be restored at your address in two hours. Twelve hours later, we were still waiting. It took another hour or two for the power to come back on. And then I found I had, uh, uh, you know, ground frequency interrupter problems in the downstairs, which, of course, feeds power to the studio. So without power in the studio, I'm dead in the water. Um, what we need is an uninterruptible power source. Way back when, when Robin and I moved to this house uh, up from Albuquerque, we were looking at, I was looking at, uh, a Tesla power wall, which if you charge it during normal hours and it's at peak charge, it can probably withstand, depending upon how you ration power, you know, no air conditioning and no electric ovens and stuff like that. But if you ration your power, it probably can last uh, for computers and phones and stuff like that for maybe several days. The problem is we've never had a surplus of funds in the kitty for the other side of midnight to allow us to do that. So if you would like to have us on the air in an uninterrupted fashion, frankly, bluntly, we need some help. We have a donate button on the home page uh, of the other side of midnight. It's there on the left if you're on a computer. I'm not quite sure where it is if you're on a phone. It's very easily marked. You can see you've made it very prominent. I'd like you to click on that button, and I'd like you to donate something toward our power problem because, as you know, or maybe some of you who are new to the show may not know, a year or so ago we went 24 hours in the dead of winter uh, without heat and light and power because of a similar problem. Somebody ran into a pole and it took them 24 hours plus to fix everything and get the power back on. So when you live in the middle of nowhere and it's gorgeous here, it's literally 
paradise optically, but it's kind of like living in a third world country because P&M, which is the local power company here in New Mexico, they, they claim to have 3,000 miles of lines and they've not taken good care of them. They have not spent money on infrastructure. They basically sent the money to their uh, stockholders. And so we are basically the customers who get the, you know, bunt end of the stick. We need a little help. Anything you can send, five bucks, 10 bucks. If you have any rich friends that would like to have us continue to follow the extraordinary unfolding of this disclosure episode that's uh, taking place now all around us. Tomorrow night, I've got Steve Bassett coming on at the top of the hour. Um, and oddly enough, there is a connection between the uh, passing of Queen Elizabeth and disclosure. And we're going to be talking in some depth tomorrow night after Steve gives us an update from Washington as to how that relationship might unfold. In addition, we have these missions heading to the moon, any one of which, we've got three opportunities, Artemis, Denori, and Capstone, any one of which, I mean, Artemis alone carries 11 8K color HD cameras, 11 cameras. We should get stunning imagery of the artifacts and structures we see on the surface of the moon, but only if someone is on the air to hold their feet to the fire and to bring to the attention of the mainstream press what it is they're not telling us if, in fact, they don't tell us. That, again, unique of all the shows that are on the air, is the other side of midnight. So if you really want to help us on the air, if you want to be at the edge of history changing, and we're going to talk tonight about history specifically can change if this information finally is allowed to go public and is verified by our friendly local neighborhood space agency, either ours or the South Koreans, then you need to help us keep this show on the air. And to do that, we need help with the alternate power fund. End of message, end of rant. Thank you. I might also add that one of the easiest ways you can help with the show is simply get more people to listen subscribe. I mean, we've got hundreds, if not thousands of hours of programming that I've done uh, here sitting in this chair in this studio, surrounded by my little furry friends uh, since 2015. Um, get someone else to sign up. Have them join Club 19.5. There is a huge archive of building data, building the model, building the evidence to where now it's push come to shove time. And with a lot more listeners, we can have a lot more meaningful political effect. Let me go and pick up item number eight. Click on that, gets very large. This is another one of those visible light images that was released from the lacrosse team that I had no idea it was color. 
that these were not just black and white images. So if you increase the saturation, that's all we have done. You can go to the original across NASA website out of NASA Ames, download the images, increase the saturation till you see color. The white areas are really, 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 really dark. They're almost charcoal black. That's about the, excuse me, the reflectivity of the sunlit lunar surface, about 7%, 5%, very, you know, like, like coal, okay? The dark areas in the, on the left-hand frame, those are the deep shadows, the permanent shadows, which are hidden behind mountains and crater rims where sunlight, uh, except for some uh, processional excursions, never shines. The image on the right is merely an enlargement of the, the small portion in the center of the frame of the image on the left, and I've rotated it about 90 degrees. Why did I rotate it? Because if you rotate it the way the human eye and brain combination is built, this goes back to experiments with uh, cat's eyes at Harvard back in the 1950s, you see certain geometry if it's presented to your eye-brain combination in a certain way. You see it easier. So I've rotated that image so you can see the geometry easier. You can see just a hint in the left-hand frame that in those incredibly deep permanent shadowed areas, there's something going on. In the right-hand frame, it shows you what? There's an incredible three-dimensional grid with layers and multiple colors and rigid geometry, all of which is hiding in the shadows. So here is where the overt mission of Dr. Rob, uh, Michael Malin's shadow cam comes headlong into the lacrosse data. Because if Michael Malin is intending to look through this geometric crud at the surface of the moon below in the bottoms of these permanently shadowed craters, he will not succeed. Because what his incredibly sensitive camera, hypersensitive, 800 times more sensitive imaging you're seeing here is going to show him is, of course, the incredible multi-layered tens of miles high geometry of the lunar dome. And the dome is most preserved at the poles of the moon and on the lunar far side. And someday in the future, I will do a show where I explain exactly how we arrive at these measurements. But empirically, you can see plainly that there's something in between the shadowed bottom of the, that, that cleft and the brilliant overexposed sunlight of the surrounding uh, lunar landscape, which is in bright sun and should not be blinding white. It should be dark, dark, black, or almost gray, meaning that's the degree of amplification of the saturation and the light intensity of the cameras on lacrosse. Now, if the shadow cam very appropriately named, spearheaded by Dr. Michael Malin. Uh, it's, it's basically designed to look into the shadows and to find safe landing sites and uh, places for polar volatiles for the uh, unmanned Viper mission next year and then the human uh, Artemis missions to follow. It will be stopped by the domes. And of course, you know what I'm going to say. That, of course, is the real hidden agenda, the shadow camp. It has nothing to do with what NASA has been telling us. 
it's all about knowing where the domes are and more important, knowing where the holes are so you can safely descend through the holes and land on the lunar surface at the South Pole. Now, the Indians, as you know, the Indian government, a couple of years ago, sent an unmanned spacecraft to this region. It crashed because it literally hit on the way down uh, levels of the dome, and you could see it tilting and tipping and all that because it physically uh, got smashed on the way down. Um, without knowing, without being able to map the areas where you can get down safely through an almost vertical landing, no one is going to be landing on the moon where the volatiles, the ices, the things you need to live, the, need, the things you need to fuel a permanent lunar base. Nobody will be able to get even near them because the dome will stop them every time unless they create a very precise map. That is where the other camera from the South Koreans comes in. Because if you go to the website and simply look up um, instrumentation for the Denuri South Korean mission, it will go into great detail in all those instruments that are listed in that graphic, including the one that says rather dramatically, let me bring it over here, wide angle polarimetric camera, the pole cam, which of course is a pun because they're taking pictures of the South Pole, right? Why is that to me an extraordinary confirmation of our model for what they're really going to use the shadow cam for? Because has you ever been out on a bright day and put on a pair of Polaroid sunglasses compared to ordinary sunglasses? Ordinary sunglasses merely dim brightness reflections on a sunny day by dimming all the light. They just absorb the light and they allow a percentage to come through. Whereas polarized lenses, this goes back to Dr. Edwin Land at the Polaroid uh, Land Corporation in Massachusetts back in the 1950s, he was the first guy to create Polaroid sunglasses. Polaroid sunglasses with a Polaroid filter will filter out, depending upon the angle, the selective polarized reflections from flat specular reflecting surfaces like water, like ice, like glass. In other words, the secret mission of Denuri is with the wide-angle polarimetric camera and the incredibly narrow-angle high-sensitivity shadow cam, the, the clandestine mission of the Denuri mission is nothing less than to use polarization and low-intensity light imaging amplification to map the damn position of the domes and find out where it is safe to land. Nothing more, nothing less. And our job is to let everybody know when the first data comes in, if they release the first data, what in fact people are looking at. And that sets the scene for the rest of our conversation tonight. Who wants to start? Don't I'd like to start. Go ahead, Robert. Like well, actually, um, this is a great foreshadowing of things to come, but uh, I'd like <laughs> to take a retrospective. I like that, foreshadowing. Okay. Yeah, it's foreshadowing. And another thing I'd like to say, I'm not so sure that Artemis will go up because foreshadowing, you know, coming events cast their shadows before them is a very old saying that I'm very fond of. 
And things are looking really grim in, in uh, Europe, especially with Turkey moving uh, 45,000 troops into the Armenian area. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it just doesn't explode in everyone's faces. But let me talk a little bit about Edgar Mitchell, uh, one of my heroes, one of the man I knew, I met. I stole some of his data using psychic powers. And I also broke his <laughs> mind control. I broke his mind control program by offering him a photograph of a UFO that he took over the moon, but did not remember having taken it. And it's a very, very interesting story. Uh, I'll tell you a little later. Edgar Mitchell is important because he walked on the moon far longer than any other astronauts. He spent on the moon nine hours and he collected 800 pounds of lunar material. And of those um, 800 pounds, 40 pounds of that went to the University of Tennessee. And in 2011, I was the only person to publish the findings of the University of Tennessee. They published an article that said, water is ubiquitous on the moon. And that's a beautiful word, ubiquitous. means it's everywhere. And they found that the, uh, a lot of the material that Edgar Mitchell had brought back was limestone. And being the great geologists that they are, the University of Tennessee, they said limestone only forms in water, large volumes of water. Which, of course, is true. Of course, of course. Uh, And also, I'd like to say hi to Keith Laney, because Keith Laney's gigapans of Mount Hadley and other prominences on the moon show that a lot of it is sedimentary material, that it's layered. And this layering also is indicative of having occurred under huge volumes of water. So University of Tennessee, I remember thee, and uh, that beautiful statement, water is ubiquitous on the moon. Subsequently, the Indian satellite Chandra did uh, a probe and, it also came across saying that. Do you mean do you mean Chandrayaan one? Yeah, that one went around and uh, was uh, taking uh, measurements and uh, samples, and they also said that water is all over the surface of the moon. So again, here's another point that uh, NASA has been hiding: the moon is wet, um, because when Thea, if you believe the Thea hypothesis. When Thea collided with the Earth and gouged out the Pacific Basin, it carried away a huge amount of terrestrial material and a huge amount of water. And according to the demonstrations that I saw using three Cray supercomputers, and Japan and Los Alamos, and I believe it was Stanford, they put those three Cray supercomputers together. And they concluded that the moon had formed, coagulated in in one month's time, that all of this material circled the Earth like a ring for a while. But because of the gravitational forces and uh, the massing, that the moon formed in one month. I saw a program at the Hayden Planetarium called Cosmic Collisions, which was really vivid. And they showed the moon crashed, Thea crashed into the Earth at about 18 kilometers per minute. So it's a long, grinding, scratching, scraping. Yeah, Robert, I hope you understand. I don't believe 
I don't believe any of that NASA model for an instant. I don't want to argue the points tonight, but no, okay, I'm telling you what they said. Neither do I. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, go ahead, well, Robert. I, go ahead. I was going to interrupt. I was going to interrupt if if uh, Richard didn't. I mean, we can't just, you know, we can't just uh, graciously accept uh, predict. Uh, presentations like that i don't mean yours robert i'm talking about the source material i mean can those three supercomputers put together come up with orbital uh results that will indicate how the moon ended up where it is if that part was true they cannot nobody's ever been able to figure out how the moon got into that orbit unless it was parked that's right. the bottom line. They can program computers to do anything. Well, you, you know the yeah, standard, yeah. You, hang on. You know the standard cliche of computers, right? Geigo, garbage Geigo. in, garbage, garbage out. out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just reporting to you what their hypothesis was. I'm not saying that I. Fair to. enough. Okay. Fair enough. But anyway, let's go back to Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell walked on the moon more, for more than nine hours, and he collected the greatest samples uh, coming back to Earth. And in, among those pictures, there's some very strange things. There's a picture of Edgar Mitchell and um, Alan Shepard contemplating a rock that looks like a head to me. There's another mysterious thing. I've seen photographs. Wait, wait. Uh, you, you mean when they're back in Lunar Receiving Laboratory at Houston? Yeah, yeah, that, that picture. Yeah, I've seen the same picture, and I had exact – you and I never talked about this, right? No, no, I have the no. same impression that they're yeah, looking looks, at some kind of fossil. fossil it's not a it rock. Looks like, it, yeah. looks like, it looks like a head, like a bust. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. why I, I mentioned that, because a lot of people will look at that picture and just look at the astronaut's faces, look at the table. And, and, and it does him. not look human. No, it doesn't. It, it is rather unusual. It um, looks alien. Reptilian, alien, something like that. Yeah. It's, and it's also, they're looking at the front of it, and they're giving us a back view of whatever it is. Anyway, I find it a very interesting photograph. Uh, while I'm on this subject, we've talked about the Mona Lisa on the moon before. This artifact that is supposed to have been brought back from the moon that looks like uh, a Tibetan mummy is my description of the female Tibetan mummy. I saw a photograph a long time ago. I was in contact with Ed for 10 years before he passed away, having met him in 2004 at the Explorers Club. And there were photographs that were released that looked to me like there was something inside the spacecraft that was brought back. It was huge. Uh, Do you know where the rocket motor is in in the Apollo landing? Yeah, of course. Uh, The ascent stage motor. It's that right in the middle of the yeah. cabin sticking up. Right, like a table. Well, like a table. Like, it like, could actually stand like, up on Like you know, a conical act- table with a flat top, yeah. The flat top, okay. So they could actually stand on top of that, open up a hatch, uh, and take uh, surveillance of the moon without Yeah, moving. now David Scott on Apollo 15 did that. Yes. After landing, first guy to ever on the moon do that, he opened the upper hatch, which is where they would enter the spacecraft from the command module. He stood yes. on the ascent engine cover, which is what you just described. And then yes. he took the two 500 millimeter lens and took a 360 panorama of right. Mount Hadley and all those other incredible geometric features. The first and last time they ever did that. Right. It's a, an EVA that they kept secret. No, 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 no. Of- I heard it live. 
That's how I knew to go look for the pictures. But really? it was the only time they ever did it, which is weird because it was so successful. Yes, and also because they remember they had Apollo 15, where Scott, Scott did it. Then there were 16, and then 17. Neither one of the astronauts on 17 or 16 did the same thing Dave Scott did, and I've right. always wondered why. Right. Well, some of us suspect that they were afraid to go out too soon because they didn't know what was outside. And I have, at the Secret Space Program uh, Breakaway Civilization Conference in 2014, I presented three photographs that were taken by uh, Scott, and they show really strange objects flying around at different angles. And NASA tried to say that uh, they were photographs of the uh, zodiacal uh, photographs of the stars on the moon. It's just the most ludicrous explanation, but it actually is a very strange craft. Well, you're not going to photograph stars with one 250th of a second and a 500 millimeter lens. Right. Well, they, they try to pawn off lame excuses on everyone who is not adept at photography as you and I are. But anyway, these are very interesting photographs, and I showed them in uh, San Francisco. At the same time, I'd like to take the opportunity to give a shout-out to the Secret Space Program conference that's going on in Silicon Valley right now. And my friend Dan Willis presented there yesterday. There's uh, there's uh, many luminaries in the UFO community uh, speaking, including Dan Willis, Nick Pope, Richard Dolan. So hello to everybody. I hope you're having a great conference. And anyone in California who's close to uh, Silicon Valley, you should know that it's uh, going on. It's going to go for another day. Yeah, as I said last last night, a few minutes ago, um, tomorrow night, Steve Bassett will be on for the first half hour to give us an update on some of the things coming out of the conference, as well as a major political development in Washington. And I mean major. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. Sure. Robert, your picture number six. Did anybody ever look at the shadow of that rock? There is something sitting on a slope of the rock. That's the one with the UFO in the background, the one where you say... Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a UFO. I think there's some hanging chad off of... Uh, Richard's dome. Well, anyway, exactly. Well, it's, 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 it's a piece of Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Take you up on that. The object sitting okay. on top of it looks like it's sitting at an angle and it should slide off, just like the balance rock well, you on can, Mars. You can see it on top but of the rock. Zoom, it's right under the crosshairs on the top of the yeah. rock. I know. Mm-hmm. But if you look closely, you'll also see two rocks sitting on top of this boulder. How did they get on top of that boulder? Well, the important thing is what's in the sky, not what's on the boulder. And I'll challenge you on that because I've seen and found this object in other photographs, including, most importantly, a 1959 photograph that was taken by an astronomer named Jesse Wilson in New Jersey. 1959, I was at St. Paul the Apostle School, and I was in about fifth grade, and my friend Dennis Healy came over. He said, hey, Robert, did you hear about the flying saucers on the moon? I said, what? He said, my father and I were listening to the radio this morning, and an astronomer in New Jersey saw flying saucers flying over the moon. Yeah? And he said, yeah, and he took pictures. I said, really? Oh, man, we have to watch the TV tonight. We have to watch the news and see if they show them. We watched the news that night, the next night. We watched it all week, and we watched it for 40 years and didn't see it. (laughs) You really thought they were going to show it on the news? No, no, I was a kid. I'm in fifth grade. No, I expect. 
you know, big things to have big pictures. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Robert, 40 uh, years later, Ron, let me finish the story. Yeah. 40 yeah. years later, I was going through the blue, uh, blue Book files. I got access to the U.S. Air Force Blue Book files, and I started going through photographs. And I found Jesse Wilson's photograph. And there was something wrong with the photograph. First of all, it looked like it was scratched on the bottom. But most importantly, the Mare Christian was in the wrong place. And I said, so I wrote an article, what's wrong with this picture? So I, I rotated the picture and put the Mare Christian. For those of you who don't know, the Mare Christian is the eye of the man on the moon. And so I put it back in the right place. And the whole perspective, just as you mentioned, Richard, with the cat's eyes experiments, when you present the geometry and rotate it mm-hmm. to the way I sees, then you see what's really there. Things so pop out, I, yes. What I found was 34 UFOs rising from the surface of the moon, passing in review of a mothership that had a very odd shape. And the odd shape was the same one that is in uh, Edgar Mitchell's picture. And those 34 UFOs rising from the surface of the moon in a big long curve passing in review before the mothership were all rising from the region of the Taurus Littoral Valley, which is where the last Apollo mission went to Apollo, Apollo 17. 17. Yeah. So the objects uh, are coming. Which, by the way, is at 19.5 north latitude on the moon. Really? I thought it, I thought it was uh, quite a bit higher than that. Nope. It, uh, oh, of course it is. <laughs> I think, uh, I think Robert, Robert, yes, can I? Yeah. I just had a question. The uh, uh, I assume that the little thing that I see in the sky, uh, straight above the left side of the um, big boulder, is the UFO you're talking about. Yes. Well, I, having just gone through a whole bunch of Apollo photographs, which is not usually what I do with my copious spare time, as <clears throat> Richard would say. Uh, it, the, it's in the exact – it's the same size and in the exact same relative position above the horizon uh, as all the pictures taken by the fellows on the ground of their trip home circling above them. So are you sure that isn't the uh, Apollo uh, orbiter? What, what fellow – no, that's not the Apollo orbiter. No, no, you never see it that big. You never see it that big and it's not that shape. This thing is shaped like the sole of a shoe. In my estimation. Okay, let us not get caught up in trivia because it shouldn't be there. It's obviously something physical, three-dimensional. It could be a piece of the dome, as Keith said, or it could be a real flying spacecraft, as Robert thinks it is. It doesn't belong on an Apollo picture. I I like both those options. I'm just checking. Okay, When I showed it to Mitchell, Mitchell was surprised and he ended it. Now, here's the important thing. I, I, uh, I knew Mitchell for several years, and then I taught this picture, and we made an appointment to speak in the morning. And uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, sometime about oh, about 10 years ago, uh, he, he told me a call. He said, hi, uh, hi, Bob. I'm here with uh, another astronaut, Bob Lisa, and we're interested in what you – I'll tell you what. Said. We're coming up to the top of the hour. We can't miss a hard break, so we'll get back to Robert momentarily you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we're talking about all the anomalies below the dome on the surface of the moon and we will be right back don't go away (laughs) 
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. On this Saturday night, September 17th, 2022, midway between two missions unmanned to reach the moon in the next month and two months after, and a unmanned test of the Artemis One super mega rocket that NASA has been working 10 years on to try to recapitulate the past glories of Apollo and extend it with brand new technology and new computers and obviously new landing sites on the moon, namely the South Pole, and all the interesting soap opera in between, as we detailed in the first 45 minutes of the show. Robert is in the midst of telling us about Edgar Mitchell, who was the uh, lunar module pilot of Apollo 14, well into the Apollo program over half a century ago. And he and uh, uh, Mitchell developed an interesting Friendship, conversation, camaraderie, collegial uh, exchange. And so, uh, Robert, please continue. Thank you. That's very well expressed. Uh, I got uh, connected with him initially through email through a group of uh, UFO spooks who <laughs> were commissioned by Ronald Reagan to try to bring out the disclosure. They're called the aviary. You, you oh, know I remember the aviary, yes. I, I got... Uh, into the aviary, and that's how I got to know. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, and I got to see a lot. You of know why it was it. called the aviary, don't you? Well, we all everybody took bird names. Yeah, but you know why the bird names, right? No, Tom. Horus, falcons, birds of prey. Okay. Well, I know hawk and I know condor. <laughs> it it's all goes back to Egyptian mythology, which goes back right. to Orion, which goes back to Sirius, which goes back to are real <clears throat> we're not sure whether they're masters or colleagues well there's another aspect is uh, that a certain group of benevolent aliens are thought to call the avians because they, they're they're described not as reptilians but as bird brains think about that <laughs> and i so have anyway. and i have someone who routinely emails me and tell me he is bedeviled by the avians the avians yeah well i take them i take people seriously you know i respect anyone who reports a UFO or an alien contact to me. I don't ridicule them. And that's why I have such a... That's part of the upcoming program I'm going to be delving into because now that we've got a kind of a database 
things I used to think were beyond the edge of the paper and not suitable for this show, which Mm -hmm. I try to base on empirical evidence. There's a lot more weird, absolutely impossible to believe empirical evidence out there than most people would give credence to. And I'm going to bring that forward as the politics of disclosure unfold around us. Right. Well, don't forget the Hawkman and Flash Gordon. Yeah, the Hawkman and Robert. Yeah, (laughs) one of my favorite groups. But let me finish with Edgar Mitchell. Edgar and I became uh, friends, and um, I extracted information from him in devious ways. I'll tell that story another time. But uh, with regard to this photograph, I found it by going through the senior manager's uh, briefing documents at NASA. And it described that Mitchell had been given a uh, a mission like Scott to take that 360-degree panorama during DVA. So Mitchell was supposed to do that. And I'm going through the photographs and thumbnails, and all of a sudden I saw two photographs of the same rock, the one you see in the picture. But the picture of the rock in the second picture was bigger, much bigger than the same rock in the first picture. And I said, damn, Mitchell must have left his position. He was supposed to stand in one spot and rotate 360 degrees and create adjoining photographs that they were going to turn into a dinorama with photos 20 or 30 feet high so astronauts could walk in there and get the feeling of the, of the panorama. Of being on the surface. But, yeah, so he, he changed his position, you know, and he ran up to the rock closer. I said, why did he do that? So when I bumped up the two pictures, when this uh, second photograph with Big Rock came in, it's called Saddle Rock, by the way, I saw that UFO. So I contacted Mitchell and told him, you know, I have this photograph you took on the moon, and I think you ought to see it. And uh, so we made this appointment, and I called up, and he said he was there with Bob Russo, a a friend of his, and they were waiting. And so I sent the picture, and I heard the ping. I hit send, and I heard ping. And then he said, I'll be damned, there is something there. And then Hmm. we went over it. And he didn't remember taking it. And of course, of course not. the astronauts submitted to MKUltra uh, training. Well, what, so what really happened in those 21 days they were in quarantine? They were brainwashed. That's right. They that were fed a script. So. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that uh, I helped crack that. When I sent him this photograph, he was really happy. And the very next day, He was on a radio station in the United Kingdom, and for the first time, he revealed that he had been raised in Roswell, New Mexico, that he had a pilot's license at 13 when the the Roswell crash happened, and he said definitively, yes, there are UFOs. And I think that that picture cracked, cracked the mind control. It also gave him something substantial to hold in his hand where you say, Mitchell says there are UFOs, and nobody could say, hey, you're full of crap, Mitchell. You say, here, take a look at this picture. I took, it this, I took this picture on the moon myself. So I think it empowered him, and forever after, he was uh, quite open about alien intelligence. Well, he was open about UFOs, which he'd never seen one, but he was totally closed uh, from the time that I debated him on Art Bell, he would never talk to me about the artifacts that are all over every damn Apollo image that I was able to co- coalesce and send to him. 
Zero well, response. Zero response. Yeah. And he was physically there. And remember, there's this incredible picture from Ken Johnson, who was head mm-hmm. of photo documentation at the Lunar Receiving Lab, was ordered to destroy all but one copy of the lunar pictures, miles yes. of priceless film. And instead of doing that, instead of obeying orders like a good German, he sent one set to his alma mater, university, and he kept one set at home, and he let me have access to some of the prints from the one set, and that's where I found the incredible panorama showing Ed Mitchell putting up a TV camera under a surface set of images of stunning clarity of the ancient glass dome rising above the moon all around the Apollo 14 lunar module. Right. I'd like to finish up just by remembering the late Donna Hare. She was another one of these brave uh, whistleblowers from NASA. Donna Hare worked in the uh, photography department and uh, found out very quickly that NASA was airbrushing UFOs out of photographs. She went in and started her training. And she looked at one photograph and she said, is that a bubble on the emulsion? And the guy said to her, Bubbles on the emotion don't cast shadows on the surface of the moon of the same shape and size. And then she said, and then he pointed out, this is, this is our job, is to airbrush UFOs out of the pictures before we release them to the public. So yeah, I remember interviewing her on WL radio uh, with Elaine Douglas, uh, the head of uh, Operation Right to Know. And she told that story, and that was fantastic. And she told me it was another story about uh, how this guy was looking at a picture and this oh, guy yeah. came up and hit him with the butt of his gun in the face. Yeah. One guy looked at a picture he wasn't supposed to look at and the guard came over and just hit him in the head with the butt of the rifle, knocked him out. And so these are all true. I'm happy to say that I knew Donna Hare and I had her on my program and I received this information firsthand. She also said that uh, there were a lot of photographs that they had dumped in a in a basket, and she went over and got them. And so she was able to release. Well, Ken of- said he was ordered to take his extra copies, ha ha, take them out to the dumpster outside the manned spacecraft center, and just let the garbage guys carry them away. Right from the dumpster. Yeah. Price. We we spent billions going to the moon, and NASA officially threw the photographs in a dumpster. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say is I'll ask uh, Keith to put uh, two more items that I'm sending you to. One is Secret Space Agenda and the JFK assassination. It's an interview I did. And I'm sending you Dan Willis's presentation from the Secret Space Program Conference that will be cleared for release uh, Sunday. That's today. So I'm going to send you those two. They're in the chat. And I would appreciate it if you add them to my items and people can spend a good time listening to uh, Two really good interviews, if I do say so myself. Okay, guys? So that, that'll, Fair that, enough. That completes my, my presentation. Have you ever tried to work with that rock picture in number seven that doesn't look like a rock to me? Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, hold on, let me see if I can get the picture. I've right. got, I've, uh, you mean number six? No, number, number seven. Yeah. The one where oh, he, the head, where he, yeah, the so-called head that's looking oh, more head. and more like a damn head, yeah. Oh, it looks like a head to me. I'd like to see. I'd like to yeah. see every possible iteration of it. Yeah. Oh, you know, one part that I didn't finish telling when I asked when I talked about the the step up onto the uh, the mo- the motor, I saw a photograph 
uh, of the interior of the uh, Apollo 14 craft, and it looked like it had something on top of it, something rather large, a uh, human body-like, covered in plaster. And then a few years later, the the, um, the lunar, the Mona Lisa on the moon came out, and I wondered whether or not they actually found that body of Chang'e. Oh, you remember when they were going, Apollo 11 was going to the moon, and, and Houston called them up and said, listen, uh, we've heard that this, uh, there's a Chinese princess who left the earth 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. with a small gray rabbit. If you see her around, would you, uh, you know, give us, give us a call? <laughs> and it was real weird, weird coded message. And I, that's when I learned about Chang'e in uh, 1969. So who's Chang'e? Chang'e was a, a, an alchemist. She was a woman alchemist. And she was messing around with levitation. And she and her husband produced these pills that uh, made them levitate. And uh, the no, she emperor, was also working on immortality. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's a story I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. but the other levitation part was the other part. So apparently, uh, she took the pill and she was taken to the moon by a six-foot-tall gray rabbit. <laughs> that's the thing. So her uh, name was not Harvey, but was Yutu. Yutu, Yutu. The Chinese name is Yutu. Yes, yep. it is. Well, anyway, that's uh, that's the story, and uh, I hope you'll listen to these interviews. Dan Willis was a former Navy man who was uh, off the coast of Alaska, and uh, they saw a UFO leave the water and shoot into the sky at seven thousand miles an hour. So he's presented a very, very, very well done. Uh, hour, hour and a half uh, interview that he presents. He presented at this uh, secret space conference in um, <clears throat> Silicon Valley. But the graphics that uh, we did is really spectacular. So I encourage people to watch it. You'll be able to find it on the main page for this program on the other side of midnight. Super. Hey, Robert. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't really need any conversation, any discussion to get in the way of your narrative. But I really like. The fact that you included that number one with the true colors of the moon, because um, people have this. Yeah, you look at those pictures and like like uh, Richard just referenced a little bit ago. uh, Yeah, some of those, they look black and white. You think they're black and white and they're not. Yeah. And the moon's a lot more colorful. I saw your photographs. Uh, Speaking of color, you have a very interesting photograph of the lunar surface and it's got a lot of rust colored surface and a lot of blue and green the first yes. picture uh, the picture the green island on the moon i gave you the uh the number follow 14 took that from orbit a green island on the moon i it's really really dark when you go to the original it's really really dark but you know i'm, I'm good at improving and enhancing photographs i was able to bring, bring that out and i was able to remove some extraneous marks that were blocking the uh, contour of the island. So it's, do you know cause... which camera took this picture? Because it doesn't look like Hasselblad's. The resume marks are totally different. It looks which, like no, the, I the, don't know. the one with the green blob in the middle of the very lightened yeah. image. Yeah. Well, I don't know which camera, but I'm sure you can find it. Uh, well, where did you find it? I found it in the Apollo archive. The number is there. Okay. AS 14... 74, 10, 2, 11. Yeah, that one. 
Yeah, and you go and you can see you, it's almost opaque. And that's another trick they use. They say, oh, this is un- this was underexposed. It's not underexposed. Well, there there there's a very important archive maintained now by NASA headquarters called the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which yes. has a companion Apollo flight journal of all the mm-hmm. orbital pictures. And the Lunar mm-hmm. Surface Journal has both orbital and surface imagery. They're all cataloged. There's low-res versions, high-res versions. They've been updating it for, you know, like a decade or two. It's it's an official source, and they're they're quietly removing the low-res versions and putting in very high-res. I think yes. this this is in preparation for when a lot of people are going to be looking at NASA's archives and wanting to know if they've been hiding anything, and they'll right. be able to say, "Oh no, just look, it's right there in the archive," and only right. the aficionados well, no, they've been quietly removing the bad stuff and putting in the good stuff. Anyway, I will go look, and because this is a very interesting picture, I do not recognize the resume marks. They look much more like lunar orbiter, which was not color film, uh, and it was an unmanned spacecraft before Apollo. Uh, there should be an Apollo Hasselblad image because that's the only color film they took, and yet it doesn't yeah. look like any, any Apollo image we've ever seen. I know. I know. I also took some of those pink marks are extraneous marks that appear on the uh, on the picture. Yeah. Okay. T- Tempest is fugitive. Yeah. Ron, I want to get to your stuff next. Okay. Well, we could. So my question about number one. Number one is a lunar orbiter picture. Uh, uh, the way that Keith um, managed to wrangle. Okay. Again, into for the those page. people who are new yeah. to the show, you go to theotherside-of-midnight.com, Click on tonight's banner for Saturday, September seventeenth. That will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, it says fast links to items. Click on Ron. That will take you to his section of the page way down, showing his images labeled one, two, three, etc. Yeah. Go. Okay. And number one, as it so happens, that's on the left there. That's the original frame uh, from uh, Lunar like, Orbiter. Looks like Copernicus. Yes. Um, Copernicus. Okay. Okay, and a close-up of a piece of it to the right. It's, you know, they're not up to the caliber of the later stuff, but uh, what the hell. And number two starts the trek to the world-famous area of uh, Mari Smithy, which is... Smithy, I think that's the name. All right. I, I I like the guy. I'm starting to I'm starting to tremble at the thought of his name because it's uh, that those two eyes at the end, which I, I is, is proper grammar for Greek. Robert's right Latin. about that. Uh, it's, it's still it's like huh? double I. The double I means of. The second I is Mari Latin. Yes, correct. Latin. I correct. Yes, yes. You're right. You're right. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, the uh, but that one is courtesy of I don't know who. You will notice that it has quite a caption attached. I actually, since I enlarged the photograph about, oh, I don't know, four, six, eight times uh, to bring out more detail, uh, I had to actually redo the caption. Oh, this is is an Earth-based amateur with very good equipment who knows how to take really good pictures freezing the atmospheric scintillation and it's like five guys, and they're in Eastern Europe. Belarus, yeah, Belarus in fact. Yeah. Yep. See? 
See, I uh, told you it was a ri- yeah. I know when I said when I told Richard about it originally, he said uh, that couldn't be, couldn't be. They can't take something like that. No, Earth. I didn't say I, that. I said. So I don't well, that's a fair comment. You know, they're, they're supposed to be better when you're there without the atmosphere. Um, well, no, what, uh, what amateurs have been able to do and professionals have done even better is you take with digital technology a whole bunch of very, very short, fast exposures, like a thousandth of a second, and you freeze the atmosphere. And then you select through software the best resolution of these brief moments when the air is steady and you superimpose them all on top of each other, like up to a thousand frames, which, you know, reduces the noise by the square root of the number of frames. And so you can get spatial vacuum resolution through the Earth's atmosphere as an amateur sitting in Eastern Europe in Belarus for basically a couple of grand. Uh, Richard, yeah, I don't- this, this could have I'm been just crazy. very impressed. I think it's a really nice piece of work. It's an amazing piece of work. Yes. But yeah. I don't. I don't believe that this could have been taken from Earth. I'm, I would suspect that it's probably something that the Russians uh, shared. No, with no, no, Robert. I have all kinds of illustrations like this in in the Dark Mission. I've got mm-hmm. I've got amateurs all over the world who are doing this routinely. They yeah. just never mm-hmm. get on NBC or CBS or ABC. That's all. Yeah, well, taking yeah. a picture of Mari Smethy is like taking the picture of the edge of a coin. And so I don't believe they could get that. Nah, it's not that hard. But, yeah, I, I just – anyway, I – well, hell, I where just described from, how it's, it's nice. done, Robert. What don't you agree with in terms of the process? Uh, I don't agree with possible. That's it. As simply as that. No. Okay, we can go on. I just okay. I just put up what I found. I and I, this is exactly what I like to hear is people arguing about it. Uh, the next one you will notice Robert has a version of this same. Uh, uh, oh, number zero. It says okay. I um. Well, anyway, the <laughs> uh, that's as much as yeah. That's as much as you could get from the uh, um, Apollo 15 photo, and uh, with a close up of what is the so-called crater Haldane. Not, virtually none of those look like craters to me in that area, but this this one especially. Well, they're not. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, look at the look at the alignment. It says it looks almost like a uh, uh, and Native American medicine painting, you know, with the lines and the straight parts and the alignment. Uh, and uh, I have interesting theories as to about what's going on, but according to NASA. It's a um, splash pattern, uh, and those the light-colored rings are the tops of uh, volcanic splash caused by the impact, and they look more to me like inflatable tubes or Quonset hut type stuff. I think it's I think it's a long, slow entry track for uh, mining equipment, uh, but don't know well but it's, it's the only something. thing i will yeah. agree on is geometric it's artificial and what it was used for we have no idea till we land right and clementine uh, or number four is an attempt at a color clementine image uh they did take multiples not really full triplets but multiples on a regular basis but uh they didn't usually work out very well but that's that's the crater tycho and um, not much more to say about that. Uh, number five is from the far side, lunar far side. And um, 
Rumker is something we've become familiar with. But when you when you blow it up, that's those are not rocks and splash patterns. <laughs> There's um, uh, they're buildings. Uh, number six, which um, Keith, yes, thanks again, Keith. I still owe you lunch. Uh, was he replaced an earlier version of it because I sent the wrong one in? The little tiny box in the upper left is the original frame, so that people have that for reference. Uh, the folks on Apollo 14, I know it says landing site 16 on there, but it was taking a picture of what was to be the uh, Apollo 16 landing site, apparently. From but the Apollo 14 mission, yeah. From the Apollo 14 mission, yeah. That's uh, understandable confusion. Anyway, they took like, oh, eight or nine fra- pictures of it, and that, that was very rare. I mean, they would take multiple pictures, you know, just as something whizzed past their window. But they really wanted to get a picture of that uh, thing there. And um, they were having trouble with glare, apparently. So I found the best one out of those. And, um, yeah, when you blow it up, you'll be a bit surprised. You know, it looks like a um, a snowball, but uh, a, a building shaped like a snowball and so they knew what they were doing, but that was that that was very close to wherever um, Apollo 16 landed, uh, whatever it is. And it's definitely it's definitely a structure. Like I said, you kind of have to blow it up to see it. Uh, number seven, um, which also has a guest appearance on another frame. Uh, this was, uh, but Robert should like this because I've never seen anything that looked more like a Crystal City than that. Um, these are Apollo uh, uh, images, and uh, that's also Apollo 14, I believe. See, the thing uh, that I'm looking two. forward to and why I'm really pressing on all these missions going back with state-of-the-art, like, 8K digital cameras, the difference between the film that Apollo had to use and the HD, incredibly high-res digital technology that Artemis alone with 11 cameras is going to be able to give us is literally night versus day. All of the things that are subtle glass on glass on glass and shimmering rainbows and prismatic, all of that will just spill out of the TV screens all over the planet. If they show us what they're taking pictures of. And that's why if they don't, there should be hell to pay. And if they do, we enter a whole new era because this is like, you know, 1850s daguerreotypes compared to what's coming if we can keep them honest. Okay. Uh, well, number eight is more of this is more of the what Richard's just referencing because they um, this is obviously surface picture. It's uh, station three. Is that what they call it, Rich? Uh, it was, it, I just said, it looks like a messy picnic area because it stretches out. This is, this is in the extreme back of the, of the frame. Well, this is where they deployed um, what they call the ALSEP package, the Apollo Lunar Science Experiments Package, ALSCP. NASA, yeah, and NASA yet, never met an acronym it didn't love. And, and that little rod on and, top of the gold foil central station is the antenna that beams the data from the other experiments that are kind of scattered around and connected by cables back to Earth. And in the far left, that's the lunar module showing how far away they deployed 
the instruments compared to the uh... and in between those two points all the way and all the way back on the hills there uh there is a rather well-defined structure but they managed to wa- sort of wash it out of the original picture as released by uh, uh, reducing the saturation. And so that was, I didn't do any selective enhancement, but what I did do was play with very co- contrast enhancement of very narrow bandwidth colors. Mm. If that makes any sense to mm-hmm. anyone. Uh, which is, so it, um, that's why it's darker and a little more detailed than otherwise. I so, love I mean, how the you, two brat. I love. I love how you labeled it picnic. <laughs> it does yeah, look like a picnic. Yes. What yeah, but there is a rectangles on. What do you think those pan rectangles? Windows. Are? Windows. In the back, you mean? The crater. And I don't think the so. Far, I, the, I I I think they're JPEGing and color saturation gone wildly wrong. Yeah. And I will. Uh, and I will go. I, I would no. They're they're on the they're they're even on the most black and white version, and they they've got too much definition. Those very. I presume you things. have the original frame number, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, we can uh, go and look in the yeah, Apollo Lunar Surface Journal Archive, and there are, they never took just one picture. There should be a bevy of no. pictures from the same mm-hmm. location. We'll find I was, other pictures and. We will compare. Yeah, this is part of a panorama, as I remember. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot. Oh, the coyotes! Um, anybody hear that? Yes. The uh, I'm sitting outside. The yeah, um, Ron, Ron, Ron. They're yes? signaling at the and bottom the, of the hour. Oh, is that Good what they're doing? Point. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're Tempest absolutely coyote. right. Yes. Wow. Smart coyote. Perfect. Hey guys, hold it there. My guest of the morning, Andrew Curry, who broke in with the time hack, Ron Gerbron, Robert Morningstar, Ruggiero Callo has not joined us. It's uh, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the pre-dawn hours of uh, morning there in Britain. Hopefully he is uh, okay. Here on the other side of midnight, we're talking about what's on the moon prior to all these missions. Three missions that will arrive before the end of the year any one of which could blow the doors off what NASA has been hiding in the form of an ancient inhabited moon for over 50 years. And at the moment, my money is on the South Koreans. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, September 17th, 2022, September. Good grief. I remember when it was February. It wasn't as warm as it is tonight. Tonight, it's almost 80 degrees here in the Land of Enchantment, and there is some kind of a looming thunderstorm. Ah, Remember, thunderstorms equal lightning. Lightning equals no power. If you can help us, if you know somebody who's got a bit of money that wants to really blow the doors off all this, And we're the ones to do it because we've got the goods, we've got the data, we have the contacts. All we need is a little gas in the car to keep us going and going and going. So back to my guest of the morning, Robert Morningstar, Ron Gerbron, Andrew Curry. And Keith has been chiming in elegantly every once in a while. So who who had the mic? Me. Okay, oh, Ron. Ron, go go for it. Yeah. Uh, okay, passing uh, passing the picnic, and I'm I'm still stunned by the fact that those coyotes broke in at exactly the right. You got very smart guys down there. Very smart. Yes. Oh, uh, they're probably part of the NASA watch. Team. And obviously, Andrew uh, Andrew speaks coyote. <laughs> uh, I, I, he has, he has unplumbed talents. I'm sure. Uh, I, the, I speak um, many, I speak many animals, <laughs> Richard. Mice yes, as well. I, I was sure going to say, have you talked to any mice lately? That's a whole other oh, story. Boy. Okay, back to Ron. Back to Ron. Go ahead. Okay, another. Okay, Apollo. Uh, after Apollo 16's picnic, we go on to one. I'm not sure which mission it's from, uh, but I, at two different times, I encountered. Different frames of basically the same thing from Apollo, so I presume they're from the same mission. But uh, one of them, I punched it, I, I colorized it. Let's just put it that way. That's the one on the left, the one that Robert said looked rusty, which, mm-hmm. yes, it's supposed yeah. to. And those are fairly honest colors. It's a risky business. No, wait, wait. To, when you, you say you, you mean you just increase the saturation of an already color mm-hmm. Hasselblad image. Taken from oil. Oh no, I don't. I mean, I applied a, I applied an extremely strenuous uh, algorithm that takes four written pages or more to explain uh, that can turn a black and white image into a color image, and it's scientifically valid, but it's tricky stuff, you know, because you don't know. You do. You would need to know a lot about how the picture was taken, what kind of film. What exposure and stuff like that, but there there are ways of doing it. The information yeah, is in way, there. There's another way. If you take a black and white picture and you take one picture of it in a blue, uh, with a blue filter, and another picture with a red filter, 
and you superimpose the two filters over each other, you'll get the color. But he's uh, right. That's that's but, kind but, of a uh, land technique. That's an indication that there is that the color data is part of the image. Yeah, but uh, that's not what's important. It's basically the same place. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Robert. It's Go ahead. Fantastic um, picture because uh, what comes to mind on the left side of that picture, there's a quadrangular structure that reminded me of the walls of Troy. That's what came to my mind. Uh, to, to the left of those three craters in the center, there are two structures, one in the background and one in the foreground, right on the left. And they are flattened, uh, like flattened ramparts, quadrangular mm -hmm. in structure, not craters. Uh, I wonder if Richard would like to comment on that. When you blow it up, or even without blowing it up, just that left side, four corners, and it looks like something like a hammer in the center of it uh, that's flat on top. It's really uh, odd and, uh, to me, totally unnatural. Great. Very mechanical thing. Yeah, See, great. Thing. One of the things that's been so off-putting among mainstream astronomers for literally uh, decades, if not hundreds of years, is that they've looked at the moon, and a lot of people have seen geometry that looked artificial. Remember, geometry equals artificiality regular geometry and they tentatively would propose this and they'd be shot down because there's too much of it and the problem i now understand having worked for years with this whole lunar dome business is that there is extensive geometric ancient bashed ruins all over the moon in fact so many of them that you get the impression that most of the lunar surface we see is degraded and smashed and battered meteor bombardment uh, artificial surfaces mm -hmm. that are incredibly ancient and on the, such a scale the tiny minds of mainstream astronomers looking at this could not comprehend the idea that maybe the moon at least the upper 30 40 50 miles is not natural at all but in fact was reworked by the same Krell types of super civilization I've been talking about over the last several weeks who built the dome and who refashioned the surface and we're looking at the result of eons of degradation which have left a kind of subliminal planet-wide geometry that because they see it on such a scale their minds say based on their mainstream education well it's got to be natural because it can't possibly be artificial because nobody could do anything artificial on that scale, which of course is completely crazy because they've never encountered Clark's third law. Well, Richard, I think this photograph yeah. really supports your, your thesis far more than almost any others. There are two rectangular, uh, quadrangular, uh, cyclopean walls, I would call them. The one in the middle with the, I'm going to call it a hammer, uh, flat and shining in the center of it. And then back behind it, another area that looks like there are steps under a canopy and uh, there's nothing round or uh, crater-like about them. And also going back to Haldane Crater, the, the crater in uh, Mare Smithy, mm -hmm. that crater looks to me like it could support your theory not necessarily of a dome, but you know the way hangers are, like half dome or rectangular in shape? It looks like a wall collapsed on the right side and rectangular, like all of it collapsed 
and maybe the interior is uh, containing material from from a cover. It if, would have been like if that. if we're mm-hmm. if we're looking at the moon as a kind of a Rosetta Stone, which has preserved um, information and architecture from its earliest moments of uh, transformation from a natural world into a hybrid quasi-artificial world with an exterior covering, as I said, that may go down tens of miles beneath the surface that we can see and extend above the surface in this gossamer-like ancient glass structure, which is covering the whole damn place. We also have to consider the idea of successive epochs of different level technological civilizations, which occupied the moon over millions of years from when it was first brought to this solar system and placed into orbit around the Earth for one specific purpose, to create the hyperdimensional conditions for life like us. That's the reason the moon exists. And you can look at the uh, angular momentum equations and do the proper numbers and it all kind of falls out. And we even know, based on that model, when the moon was brought to this system and placed into orbit and it was 565 million years ago. How do we know that? Because that's the moment of the incredible step function called the Cambrian explosion, when life went from little, little simple-celled blue-green algae and a few little more complex guys swimming in the ancient oceans to suddenly an explosion of families and genera and species of extraordinarily sophisticated life, and it all had to do with putting the moon in orbit, opening an hyperdimensional gate to where life really comes from, which is not these three dimensions, and that gate allowed the information to come through and to organize matter on Earth into biological forms a la Chandra's model. So if the moon was pivotal in leading to us, through a long series of intermediate, very sophisticated technological civilizations, when the original purpose of the moon-covering dome was long since passed, it is perfectly permissible in this model to say that like they did on Mars, later technological civilizations, far beyond our capabilities as yet, domed in individual areas, craters, so-called seas, whatever, in a microcosm of the whole moon-girdling dome. And I believe Haldane, with its stunning geometry, is one of the latest relics of that epoch. In fact, it may be Haldane where we're seeing some of the most recent, prior to us, artificial inhabitation of the moon, which opens up the idea that maybe our own previous civilizations went to the moon, built moon bases, in places like Haldane, and when we someday can land there, we will find them like ancient, empty Antarctic stations waiting for us to explore them. It is somewhat unique. I mean, I don't know any place it is on the moon. That I have looked and looked and looked. It has that out. kind of structure. You know what it most reminds me of, and I didn't have time to put it up, and if I give it to Keith, he probably won't be able to put it up, but it looks incredibly like the geometry of the moon base scene in the Disney Von Braun film of men exploring the moon in 1954 
on the wonderful world of color. Yeah, and we all believe, I think, that the uh, military and the secret whatevers uh, have probably investigated those places, never even without going to the archives and the magic books. Uh, they took a look before any of those missions went there. I mean, I got the, uh, that impression from the earliest stuff from, like, Global Surveyor at, at Mars. I said, how does he target this stuff? You know, and well, then we find well, remember, out. Remember, Mar- I've got I've got actual film from the CIA from Project Corona, and it went right. through several subsequent iterations. They had spacecraft increasingly, incredibly more sophisticated than the first Corona cameras. One of the lineal descendants was a spacecraft called Gambit, which was the equivalent of a Hubble-type telescope in Earth orbit, but they turned it toward the moon. How do I know? Because that's where those pictures came from. And if they if they took those pictures that I was leaked, they obviously took a lot more. And given that they were in orbit with nothing but vacuum between the telescope and the moon, they could have taken incredibly high-res versions of Haldane at that angle when it's on the edge of the moon because of lunar libration. And they could have literally, depending upon the size of their optics, seen Apollo equivalent resolution from Earth orbit in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, sure. I Well, without revealing anything that would get me uh, shot or arrested, uh, <laughs> one of our uh, one of our carriers uh, that has more equipment than most uh, happens to have an optical telescope on it with an eight-foot diameter lens. When you say carriers, uh, you mean aircraft carriers? I do. Okay. And, uh, just and I presume you don't. So, I, I presume you don't mean a lens. You mean a mirror? No, I mean a lens. Uh, the largest lens, lens. ever. An, a largest lens ever made was Yerkes, which was forty inches, which is nowhere near eight mm. feet. The reason you can't have a huge lens is because they sag under gravity. That's why mirrors, which can be supported, can be much, much bigger than any lens-like telescope. The source of this information is over six feet tall. And, and I don't believe the it. Lens, the lens was much larger I, than he was. I don't I've believe seen, it. I don't, beli- it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Hey, hey guys. Okay. You can't, you can't fool Mother Nature. Gravity is implacable. Breaking news. Breaking yes. news. Yeah. I just did Uh-oh. an enhancement. I just did an enhancement in that area that I described as Cyclopean walls. And I, yes. just, I just put it into the chat. And it is what I said. That thing's a building. Upright, mm-hmm. straight walls, openings in the sides. It's incredible. Take a look. And please... Uh, Keith, please post this uh, right below uh, Ron's picture of the same, the Apollo 16. You mean you mean number nine, Ron's number yeah. nine. So yeah. make so make it nine A. Yeah, make it nine A. That, I think. That'll be good. Posting. Take a take a look at that. It's spectacular. Okay, Ron. While we're okay, doing yeah, that, it's, it's it's number, number eight, ten. Number yeah. eight, 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 Oh, the picnic. Oh, he's okay. Well, eight, eight, well, then eight, it'll be eight, eight. eight. Okay. Yeah, eight, eight. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Take okay. a look. It's unbelievable. Well, let like me I get said, myself. Black into the black. Yeah, you have to get onto your computer to see it, but I'm sure the rest of the team can see what I'm talking about in the chat window. Goodies. Very good. Okay, so okay, Ron, number, number 10. Yeah, I'm running it. Yeah, you know, you know what I like to do. I like to run through them and let people muse over them later. Uh, the uh, number 10 is the repeat appearance of that. But so I think Apollo, possibly Apollo 15, uh, the crystal. Uh, I can't think that that stuff on the ground could be anything with glass. And this is actually higher resolution than the standalone picture a couple back. Uh, and it's paired with three other shots from Apollo's uh capsules orbiting overhead on various missions and all of which look to me to be incontrovertibly structural uh and the one on the lower well the two lower ones are both color they they were color images i just the one looks more colorful than the other but they were both actual color images and um the yeah um and the uh we'll let people find their own find their own joy in those, but it's just, you know, you see it, the structures are everywhere. Uh, and number 11 is the one that I had trouble getting up tonight. My fault. Uh, he's, uh, that is from the Japanese cameras. Now all these years I've wondered where all their archives were. And last week I discovered that they actually published a lunar atlas or someone did you know, on their behalf. And it's a really nice one. You know, meaning it's got pages and pages of descriptions and uh, uh, location maps for each uh, each of the images, and uh, they did strip mosaics. So the all the uh, all the images are you know a combination of half a dozen uh, horizontal strips, and they did a very nice job of it. And so that's where these came from. I just picked a tasty spot out of each one. And um, so the, um, yeah, the upper left there is Shackleton, the South Pole. Yeah, that's one of the potential uh, landing sites for the Artemis and the uh, preceding Viper mission. Yeah, and it looks like there might be some buildings there for them to move in on if they wanted to. Do you, and, do you um, know what really strikes me about that, though? Look in what? the shadows. What do you see in the shadows? Hmm. It well, they're very be, sharp. Yeah, except they're they're not black. On my screen, which is pretty large here in the studio, there's mm-hmm. a there's a gray geometry. Do you see that, Robert? Picture are we talking about? We're talking about. Oh, we his went number, to number eleven. Number eleven. Yeah, no, this is not. It's the upper left quad of yeah. his of his number eleven, which is uh, Shackleton, which is one of the craters at the South Pole where Artemis is going to look for potential landing. There's all kinds of interesting geometry on the surface, particularly top of that smaller crater in the middle. Yeah. And you see the shadows? Yeah. But they're not black. They're not black, and they look like they've been filled in artificially, actually. But see, see, the only way you can get them not to be black is if there is a glass, something between you and the surface, and the glass mm-hmm. is shining, it's scattering light, and it's very mm-hmm. dim light. And the JAXA camera was not that good compared to, you know, Malin Shadow Cam. And it's I'm, a 4K uh, TV camera. 
Yeah, but this, it's not the resolution. It's the sensitivity. If you're looking for yeah, low, yeah. low light level stuff and you want to have good signal to noise so you pick it out, you need a special camera mm-hmm. like the Shadow Cam is, which is the best damn mm-hmm. camera that will ever have been flown. And I'm telling you, even on this JAXA image, I can see the dome covering the entire image and you're looking down through it at the surface uh, geometry beneath it. Uh, wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that it's something like that. I mean, I did lighten it up a little, you know, as much as I could yeah, without but, damaging yeah, exactly, the Exactly, but all you did was lighten what's there. Yeah, exactly. It was generic. The whole, yeah, the it's, whole it's frame. Not, it's not you know. noise. It's low light no. level something scattering sunlight, which is coming from the from the left at a very shallow angle. How do we know the shallow angle? Look at the shadow of the crater right in the lower right center. Look at how narrow the rim is, how the crater floor is almost completely filled with shadow. But there is light covering that crater floor, very thin, very evanescent geometric stuff. Well, to the to the right of it, you've got uh, Marginus, uh, which is right next. You to mean the Orton, next frame, uh, the next the next path? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that which is back on the um, um, on the limb with um, Mare Smythe, and um, it's uh, you can see on the upper left corner of it how square that is, mm-hmm. <laughs> rectangular. Uh, so there's some, and the lower left is um, Patavius, which is a, which is a crater I never heard of uh, before that atlas. That is on the far side. I think it's pronounced Patavius. All right, but it see, what's interesting is there's a consistency between Patavius and Marginus. You know, the top right frame and the yes. bottom left frame. What's the commonality? It's the stuff in the middle of the crater. Remember, mm-hmm. the standard NASA model is the way you get these big craters, which are like 60, 50 miles across, um, is you have something coming in at one hell of a hypervelocity. It strikes the moon. You get a nuclear-level explosion, and then you get a rebound peak, and it freezes because it's rock, and it radiates heat furiously, and that's the junk in the middle of the crater. I think Yeah, the fun is... That- I- I Those think, never look like that. I think that's totally wrong. I think you're looking at ancient yes, walled cities, right. domes, and the stuff in the center were the buildings on which were the center support of the rest of the glass dome covering the crater, built by a civilization super complex compared to us, but really inferior compared to the original guys who domed in the entire moon. We're looking. Yep. All we have to do is find the libraries. Mm-hmm. What is that trench to the uh, exactly? To what the right is that trench? The center of Petravius. Yeah, what yeah, is that's, that? That's yeah. Good, uh, good question. Don't have an answer. Well, if, uh, the, if, if the moon surface is really honeycombed, which I believe it is, based on a lot of data, down to about forty, mm-hmm. fifty miles, then everything you're looking at was overlaid by shattered glass and dust from meteor bombardment. But in fact, you're looking at the top of an artificial surface, which when it cracks, will crack along geometric lines and patterns. And so you're not seeing lava. You're not seeing the normal geological explanation. You're seeing what an incredible super planet-sized machine looks like. 
as it grows older and older and older and entropically decays. In other words, when NASA first mm-hmm. encountered this, they had no way they could tell us because they were freaking out and they said, good God, we can't tell them this. They'll, they'll, they'll you know, what a brick. Remember Brookings. They mm-hmm. cannot handle the truth. That was their position and it still is, which I think is why Artemis is still mired on the ground and why, you know, Capstone is tumbling in space tonight. Someone does not want us to go back to the moon because they don't think we're ever going to be ready. Well, I think you nailed it when you said that there's just too much of it. That's the problem. You can explain away a statue or a, yep, you know yep. an anomaly, but when uh, there's so much of it, then you have to. You See, say, you're looking oh, at well, the, we'll you're, you're, you're looking at Clark's mm-hmm. third law cubed. Any sufficiently mm-hmm. advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And you know what the military guys saw when they saw those first CIA images. Holy cow, we can't fight that. What if they're still around? We can't tell anybody. Good grief. And they've been hiding under the beds ever since. Well, to get to the last of the the fun stuff here, the bottom of that fret, the bottom of the four-way there, uh, that's Marius, another another area, and it's a, it's a wider view than the other ones, but it's because of that stuff on the left side just before it got gets too dark. Um, well, when it goes into the Terminator, uh, very low. Yeah, look angle. at all that. It's all geometric all buildings. It's all buildings, buildings, buildings. Yeah, it's like scaffoldings and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And now, now, to, Steve Troy, my erstwhile late friend, Steve Troy, who got tons of imagery out of NSDC by magic. Uh, He's got analog Apollo data on the Marius Hills that show incredible – they're all stored here. I don't have a place to unpack them. They're in like a dozen boxes that I saved from his mad sister who charged me a 1000 bucks that we didn't have, but I somehow found it so that I saved Steve's priceless life's work. He's got stunning Apollo documentation of what the geometry you see here in the completely different JAXA imagery and time frame and mission and government and technology of the same geometric buildings on the moon. Hmm. Okay. Well, the last thing, little Philip, that that lovely engraving. Which is I'm I don't know about Andrew, but oh I'm, oh oh, and we're, we're at the top of the hour. I was just going to say, Keith, are you watching? Yeah, I just the wanted time? to announce. A, yeah, I just wanted to announce the picture before that. The uh, uh, well, you can't, yeah, you like, can't. We don't have time. Do it when we come back. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, who tends to uh, give us really interesting backstory. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're at the top of the hour. It is now Saturday night, going into Sunday morning. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is now officially. The Witching Hour here in the Land of Enchantment. It is Sunday morning. So welcome to our last hour on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, Robert Morningstar, Andrew Curry. We were supposed to be joined by Ruggiero Kahlo, and uh, I've not seen Heidner Hare. Um, we may find him when we go back, and we may not. And, of course, we've got uh, Keith Morgan with us and lurking somewhere in the background is Kinthea. So, Ron, um, mm. take us to the last picture, because this is really, you know, when we have a hard break, I've got to run. Otherwise, the radio stations sure. that carry us, they get very upset because we don't match their commercials. So, okay, right. last number, well, last wow. image. All right. I already know that half of the, half of the crew tonight uh, are unfamiliar with the program, so it's kind of sad. But when I saw this engraving, which, like I said, and I believe Andrew probably agrees. The uh, the level of quality of the uh, engravings that you see out of like the late 19th century are just phenomenal. I mean, it's like you know, it's like they could whip off a dollar bill freehand. It's uh, <laughs> um, it's amazing. Uh, I'm very very impressed. But the uh, that is a picture of William Henry Smythe and his wife Anarella, uh, both amateur astronomers. And apparently, wasn't he an she did a lot. Uh, he was. He reached that rank. He actually uh, was a. Um, he was actually born in New Jersey, but it was only about twenty years after the uh, we had broken off from Britain. And he was a loyalist, a British loyalist. And so when he when he as soon as he was old enough, he moved back to Britain, and he rose through the ranks there. Uh, the, um, there was a little bit of a aristocracy involved, I think, uh, through the Navy. And, yes, he, he reached the rank of admiral. And um, But then someone – Well, he did more than he, that. <clears throat> he reached the moon. Yeah. He made a very well, wise yeah. life decision in moving back to England because it wound him up as Maurice Smythe on the upper right-hand corner of the moon. Yes, and this was because uh, one of his uh, associates, that he, whose advice he was taking, told him that there were two things that were required of a gentleman that wished to become an aristocrat. Uh, one was a smart wife, and the other was a telescope. 
Oh. And, and God now. So, so he said, okay. He, so he somehow he found the so, telescope. So we got both. And, um, <clears throat> yes, and so they he became an amateur astronomer. And I really, uh, aside from the fact, I'm somewhat fascinated by the fact that he was actually born in New Jersey and moved back to Britain. But uh, other than that, I. I I don't know all about him, and I do not know why he is holding that medallion in his hand in the engraving. That's, you've got to admit that's strange, but uh, I'm sure there's a story there. Uh, well, Ron, is it? The, might there not be a Masonic? Yeah, might there not be a Masonic connection there? Remember? Uh, Ooh, with, you may have gotten it. Yeah, and I believe his friend Pence, who told Pence, him that Pence he got needed, a that mysterious yeah, voice Pence. is not our pet coyote. That is Andrew Curry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, you remember Vice President Pence got that coin after ratifying the election um, back in 2000. I don't know. There, there could be something there that's – Andrew, I think you nailed it because my, fa- my father uh, – I still have his Masonic coin, and it's about that size. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, do we know how he got to the moon? What do you mean how he got to the well, – Who named Mari Smythe after Admiral Smythe? Uh and that why? I'm not sure it, it wasn't mentioned in the it wasn't mentioned oh, darn. in the um in the lunar well you know NASA has has rooms full of uh servers full of uh trivia. arcane trivia that they put the yeah and that, that none of the none of the ones that I looked at happened to mention and I obviously there's a listing I think that's the astronomical I'll something. tell you what um are you able to google while you're out there on the lawn with the coyotes uh, actually, no. The phone can't handle it. Oh, okay. I mean, I could, but is that what you? I'll try. Well, I'm thinking while I'm, Andrew I'm, is I'm, while Andrew's holding for us because we we have been waiting in the wings next. I thought you might yes. Google and ask the very blunt question: How did Mari Smythe get its name? And that may tell you how the admiral wound up going from New Jersey. <clears throat> all us born in New Jersey, holding up my hand here. We left okay. as soon as we realized it. And he wound up on the moon. And Andrew, you need to know this is all Richard's fault because I can't. I already looked at your page, but I can't. I can't go back and look at your panels while I'm doing this search. But I'll try. Although I did find out that Lake Maracaibo in uh, Venezuela is now the uh, lightning championship winning location on the planet Earth. Oh, that's nice. An average to know that of, I almost got killed for nothing. Okay. That's yeah, an average I of. They had a record. Yeah, they. Well, no, it beat out. Uh, it beat out uh, a place called Vitu on the coast, on the border of uh, uh, Zambia, um, which was three hundred and sixty some strikes a year average, and it's uh, Lake Maracaibo. They they tally three hundred eighty nine. So it, it beats it out by like 20 strikes a year. But um, have no fear. There's hope for Bernadillo. Maybe it'll you mean start Ber- getting struck you, by lightning. You mean Bernalillo. That's how you pronounce Bernalillo. That, that town west of me here. Okay. Andrew. I always get it wrong. Yes. Andrew, you okay, are Okay, go ahead. I will try and find out where Mary Smythe got its name. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew? Yes. Yes, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> hello. Uh, very interesting. Ron, um, I think you showed so much cityscape, ancient cityscape. It's absolutely stunning. 
Um, now, if we go to my items, I, I want to um, take a little bit of a different direction when I get to the end. I'm, I'm making some uh, – well, Richard and I have done this a lot. Richard's done this a lot where we uh, talk about artists in the past who have miraculously <laughs> interpreted things that we later find or maybe we think we find on places like Mars, like Jack Kirby's face on Mars, um, and even Jack Kirby and some – things on the moon. So I want to go over that a little bit later, but I want to start off with my items. Uh, if you go to, again, the show page uh, banner, tap on that, go to the guest page, and there's fast links to items, and mine is under Andrew. And my first one for you know repeat listeners who have listened to the show over the years, the first two images are a bit of a, a nostalgia of, um, jump, but I think it's important. Um, this is what I call my first poster is number one, uh, Temple Row. And this is from a Gigapan or a, uh, I call it Gigapan, Robert pronounces it differently, from Keith Laney. And it's called DeForest, I was going to say DeForest Kelly. He's <laughs> heading off to space. Well, right? I was going to say DeForest Kelly is going to DeForest Crater, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's, you, want to, you want to quickly tell everybody? No, what no, I, no, what no, 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 no. Too okay. many diversions, yes. Okay, I'm, I'm bad at that too. So yeah, DeForest uh, Crater, and it's a lunar impact crater on the far side of the moon. Near the lunar southern. south pole. Yes, yeah. And one of these ones where the sun comes in really obliquely. and All Keith the time, these, all the time. All the time, yeah. And Keith has done these beautiful gigapans or – how did you say it, Robert? Gigapan? No. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Gigapan is He is borrowing that from Back to the Future, which is wrong. Is he? It's Giga, not Jiga. Jiga. That's the way he says. Yeah, it's Giga, not Jiga. I say gigabytes too. I say gigabytes. Yeah. Well, the pronunciation is Giga. Anyway, look at that. Great Scott. I'll say tomatoes. Some people say tomatoes. So But listen, as long as we interrupted here. I found the answer to the Mari Smithy question, and it does have a Masonic ah. connection. Ah. In the same British Association report where Mari Smithy is named, Lee named the crater Piazzi Smythe in honor of Smythe's son, Charles. Piazzi Smythe is the guy who, who mapped out the Great Pyramid of He Pisa. was the Astronomer oh, Royal yeah. of Scotland who imbued the Great Pyramid with all of these incredible higher-level mathematical and geometric uh, uh, constants yes. and measurements that he thought were handed down from God. So he was... Excellent. ETs were not part of the conversation back then. So if it, was, if it was not terrestrials, it was the ultimate extraterrestrial, i.e., God. Fairies. Okay, that's it. Yeah. We got the answer. Thank you, Robert. No, good score. Yeah. Now Andrew, I, we I'll have to try. be very dedicated to stay on track. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get giggy with it, that's for sure. So <laughs> this, um, yeah, this is a stunning um, gigapan. And what Keith did is he, uh, well, I zoomed in on a lot of the little, I, well, they're not little. We, we think they're fairly, fairly large. Now, if you look at my, my first poster again, these little cutaways on the left-hand side are from like from spots in, in this crater. And I they're, didn't put they're boxes super close-ups that Laney carefully enhanced from his Gigapan, from NASA's yeah. original. I believe this is LRO data. Yeah, LROC. Yeah. The yeah. OC is our LRO camera. 
Uh, it's got numbers and identifiers. You can find it on the web. You can find Keith's Gigafan. But these incredibly architectural-looking things on the rim and in the crater, when you yes. did your sketch, they look eerily like, drum roll, <laughs> Buddhist temples? In and, Thailand! And, yeah, in Thailand, and, and pagodas that dot the landscape. Again, we can just, people can scroll through it. I, again, I'm not saying that's what it is, but it's eerie. And I even talked to Keith about the height of these things. And for instance, the, fir- the first one that looks to me like a, you know, the same shape as the image on the right, which is this called the Big Buddha, and it's from Thailand. He says that's about two, two, no, uh, what did he say at the time? Three stories high. I mean, I don't know how he figured out his heights, but I think it's a lot. Well, you can do that. it from the scale of the imagery and knowing the slant range and all that. And the only thing yeah. Keith doesn't do is put them on the actual image, which he should. But yeah, you can figure out all that. And these are human-sized yes. buildings. That's right, Richard. That's the thing that keeps repeating. And they look and... eerily like the kind of pyramids, the Russian steeply slanted pyramids that Charlie, oh, what's his last name? He lives in North Carolina. I've got one of his pyramids sitting in my living room. Has built and distributed to customers all over the world that allow you to basically concentrate the torsion field and make interesting things happen in that geometry, which is super steep compared to Egyptian pyramids. And I think it has to do with different phases. Charlie Z. Say again? Charlie Z. Charlie Z. Yes, yes. No relation to the camera people. Thank you, dear. That was Kinthea. Not, a, not another coyote. That was Kinthea. <laughs> so... Anyway, so if you scroll down, the, the, the cutaways from the uh, Gigapan are on the left and, and, well, on the right, too. But I do put them side by side with these, these beautiful ancient pagodas in, in Bagan, Myanmar. And the, the beautiful thing about it, Richard, is that they, they dot the landscape on Earth. And it just so eerily looks like what we see in this, this part of DeForest well, Crater. So form, if we come up, form follows function. If the physics is embodied in the geometry, which we know from our experiments, Robert and I going around and measuring all this damn stuff for years, and then you look at the Russian data, then you look at Charlie's, you know, replication on a on a scale that you can put in your living room, the steepness of these ancient Asian temples, and the eerie comparison with what Laney's found in DeForest Crater and other craters on the moon. It's unmistakable. Someone was trying to amplify the physics locally for exactly the same reason that the Buddhist temples look like they do. Yeah, and you know, there's another thing here I would like to come back to towards the end, but I'll drop drop it right now. And that is something that both, um, well, no, yeah, well, uh, Robert kind of referenced it. Ron mentioned it, and now you're saying it, Richard. There seems to be just like what we see on Mars, so many different, ter- well, what, what we think, because we see them on Earth, terrestrial references to many cultures. And if the entire moon, I wanted to ask you this question, if the entire moon was, was domed at one time, is it not conceivable that there could have been many different kinds of people living there, like in many different kinds of ways? And I, it's... What do you think? Well, I mean, let's, I know it's let's, let, let's just assume, given that I've dated when the moon was added to the Earth as an Earth-Moon system, 
566 years ago, half a billion years ago, give or take, the Cambrian explosion. At that time, it looked very, 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 very different than it does now. In fact, in one of my you know, three-hour-long thingies the last several weeks, I actually had an artist's rendition what it might have looked like. And it, it would look, have looked stunning, like, a, like an incredibly complex crystalline glass uh, Christmas tree ornament with all kinds mm-hmm. of things sticking up, not a, not a sphere, but an incredibly uh, almost glass Victorian steampunk version of a glittering Christmas tree ornament. And then it got beaten to hell by half a billion years and meteor bombardments and the war. So all the stuff we now see on the surface, I think as much more recent civilizations, when the Krell-like episode, the guys who brought it here originally and redesigned the whole solar system so consciousness could originate, evolve, make mistakes, and do God knows what we're supposed to be here doing. I mean, that's a huge amount of history, half a billion years. The stuff we're seeing, I think, is much, much, much more recent, like maybe 5 million, 10 million tops, maybe even much more recent than that, maybe even only 100,000 or half a million. In other words, much more in the human range that we can comprehend compared to half a billion when the whole solar system was, again, by the numbers, redesigned. Yeah, I... I, It's... I yeah, mean, you see remarkable. why the NASA folks freaked yeah. out. Yeah, of course. There's no way yeah. they could have told us any of this 50 years ago. Hell, they're having yeah. a problem telling it to us now. Yeah, and the sheer variety of form, too, that we keep you know, stumbling across. But if, if we go into my number two, uh, again, this is a poster I've shared before. I call it elegant design. I, I sort of zeroed in on a couple of shapes. Oh. Again, in, yeah. And this one's unbelievable. Like, uh, it sits really high up in the, uh, well, I call them the lowlands inside the crater. You can find this. If you go to uh, Keith's Gigapan and you just zoom in, you find all this stuff. It's incredible. Well, this looks to me like a like a door into something, <laughs> Richard. It's unbelievably, uh, my, I, I did a little enhancement drawing or digital drawing below uh, the, the top one. And then if you keep scrolling down, You'll see these these amazing forms, and there's a curly Q one that's even more elegant. Uh, my very last image, that's my digital, and you just look up into the image above, and again, it's right to the left hand side, and it's this strange. I, I don't even know how you, it's almost like a like a you know like a Hershey kiss kind of a little droop. And I go, how did that happen naturally? So there's all these. Forms oh, look! look just, it, it's it's in your panel. You've got four strips. Yeah. It's the yeah. third strip down on the left. And then below that is your artistic rendering, and yeah. it does look exactly like a beautiful curlicue artistic mega architecture thingy, like it's, something like see, a lunar Frank Lloyd Wright would have done. Yeah, exactly. It's you see these beautiful forms, and they're they're I mean, not they rocks. Very, There's no way they're rocks. <laughs> yeah, come and on. They're very buried too. They're very very buried. Yeah. Well, be so we because of, they're very very old. That's what I'm saying. These yeah. things. Depending on what they're what they're what they're made of, you know, if they're made of really stern stuff, some kind of high tech alloys like yeah. adamantine steel, I uh, stole that from uh, you know Forbidden Planet. Uh, they could be millions of years old. 
Because look at all the yeah. stuff around them. Look at how they're semi-buried. What, what do you think all that stuff is? I'm telling you, I know exactly what it is. It's the damn glass of the domes falling like fallout when it's been abraded and shattered and falls to the surface. Remember, from the Apollo samples, half the weight of the lunar materials returned by Apollo was glass. Half the weight. And by the way, did you see that story making the rounds this week? The Chinese have found another form of glass and they're landing on their Chang 5 that they returned to Earth. And they think it traps helium-3 or helium-4. I forget which isotope. Didn't know there was a 4. There's a 3. Yeah, I think it's helium three. three. Helium three is the one that's good for nuclear reactors or something. Yeah, it says people that have never built a nuclear reactor that can do one one fusion of helium three. Anyway, yeah. By the way, Richard, did you hear that the Chinese uh, are debunking the Oumuamua uh, space probe? Oh, uh, I saw that paper. Isn't that something? But but the guy did leave a very interesting loophole. Which goes because he he basically said no uh, lobe is is nuts it's not a solar sail, and I think mm-hmm. lobe is nuts too it's not a solar sail. He the only way he can make it accelerate when it goes around the sun is have solar radiation pressure pushing on a solar sail. See he has not allowed us to introduce him to the actual De Palma experiments in hyperdimensional torsion field physics because I have the absolute answer which Loeb can check, he can test it, and either prove us right or prove us wrong, and he will not talk to me, so he will never be confronted with a test that will prove us right or wrong. But it's the Chinese are closer to it's really an alien technology as opposed to a dumb solar sail. Yeah. Again, the Chinese are doing an Emily Dickinson number on the whole planet and have for a long time. When it comes to space, their terrestrial politics, of course, suck. By the way, you know that photograph that you sent a couple of uh, weeks ago, the Chinese photograph that I said, why do you want a drawing of a drawing? Those, I showed those, Andrew I, sh- I showed Andrew that it, it is uh, doctored, but, you know, just as somebody can fake a picture, I have a way of unfaking the picture. So maybe in a week or two when you do another show, I'll bring out those photographs. Well, as we get through this Artemis thing and we get the spacecraft arriving, I mean, the soap opera is only going to get more exciting. The reason yeah. I know it's not faked is because I've got Apollo data that no one's mm-hmm. seen that shows identical geometry. Mm-hmm. And I, the Apollo people were so stupid back then, they didn't know what they were seeing. So they put mm-hmm. it out so it could be downloaded before they realized, oops, we shouldn't do that. And I haven't had time because of all the technical problems. Hint, hint. We need power supplies, guys. Um, well, you said look at the horizon, and I did. And Andrew and I went over it, and I showed that. Well, they, what's all right? Let's. They, let, you want, the Andrew, Andrew, you know, we we will get back to you in a moment, okay? Sure. The reason I call your attention to the horizon is because unlike the photographs taken from the, the near side, the Earth side, what's yeah. missing in the far side Chang image is the dome above the horizon. Well, you'll be happy to see what I found. And the reason it's, it's it not there is yeah. because you're looking at the dome. It's in much better condition. And when I say dome, people get this idea of like an inverted salad bowl. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. 
This is an incredibly three-dimensional geometric structure which has depth and breadth and height. And the only reason it's a dome is because it held air artificially. Oh, perhaps, perhaps shell would be a better word. Yeah, but even that, but does, the, even that doesn't say it. You know, language is specific, and I'm, you can come up with a better language. I'm, I'm willing to go with it. But for me, it's like wrapping the moon in saran wrap. Yeah. On, on one side, the saran wrap is pretty much intact, and it's got height. It's got tens of miles of height, and it's got internal geometry. On the near side, it's almost gone because of erosion. And so they were able to land safely along the equator where it's almost vanishingly disappeared. At the poles, they will have huge problems, which is why Denuri has got to work. The shadow cam and the pole cam have to work. Otherwise, there ain't no Artemis moon bases at the south lunar pole or anybody else's lunar bases down there. Wouldn't radar help? No, resolution. You need optical resolution to see where the holes are big enough to fly down through. Okay. Anyway, well, Andrew, have- Andrew, 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 Andrew's got the floor. Andrew. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we come out of that and go to my number three. Now, this is new, and it's a little bit old, but it's mostly it's new. It's new, and it's old. Okay. That sounds <laughs> interesting. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Oh, this is so super cool. Yeah. Oh, this is amazingly so call- cool. So start at the beginning. Yeah. So and we've I got, we got four minutes till the bottom of the hour. Real quick, yeah. So, well, we um, can pick it up after the break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when Apollo 11 landed, of course, um, a lot of model companies, you know, plastic model companies did, uh, you know, like Rizal and Mattel yep. and, yep. you know, those are two companies that come to my mind. Monogram. Yeah, monogram. Yeah, exactly. These are the ones that I have here. And there's a very interesting um, theme, visual theme that keeps happening in the artwork of these sort of boxes because they come out, they or they, they've been coming out every few years. I found a little timeline, Richard, on uh, somewhere I Googled it. And it, you know, I think 69 was the first one. And then there was another one in 72. And they just had, you know, like, I mean, this, this particular model, I had many other models, of course. But this one came out with the same artwork until, I believe, 2019. And what you'll notice in this artwork is that you've got the two astronauts on the moon, you've got the lander, and then, Richard, in the background, against the black sky, is this strange, like, blue, hazy streakiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that the best way to describe it? Yeah. I, and, yeah. And mm-hmm. what's interesting, if you kind of scroll through it. With the, art, this, the art bean, Al Bean version of the dome. Yeah, and then you, if you go down to the third box, which is um, box number three, if you're kind of going clockwise, and I know we're, we're two minutes away. What a coincidence. A, the third box is box number three. Yes. <laughs> well, there's a, there's, a, there's a photograph, a profile of Buzz Aldrin with his autograph. So they probably did a little special edition here. It's called the Buzz Aldrin Rocket Hero. And they have him staring on the, the right-hand side over at one of these – well, he's kind of looking at the, the lunar module, but guys, I think he's looking past the lunar module at this, in my imagination, at this fuzzy background. Now, Richard, this just lines up so much with the paintings of, uh, of Alan Bean, where he was just 
At first, his paintings were very black. We've gone over this very much. His background is his sort of you know moon sky. Then became this incredibly mottled, uh, textured, um, you know, worked and hazy, especially with blues and 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 like you know um, glazes to give it this hazy look. And they retain this in all of these boxes. These, these model boxes until about 2019, and then it changed. It went black. Now I know we're we're 60 seconds out, Richard. So do you want to you maybe go from there and I'll come yeah. Let, let, us, let us pick this up after the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Andrew Curry, who has been speaking with interesting, informative interruptions by Robert Morningstar and Ron Gerbron and Keith in the background, and Kintia supplied me with Charlie Zeese's correct name, the guy who builds the pyramids. You should not uh, be without one in your living room. Mine are showing interesting stuff. You're on the other side of midnight, last half hour to go, on the other side of midnight for September 18th now, Sunday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. We shall return. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Sunday, no, it's actually Sunday morning. Saturday night, Sunday morning. We'll, you know, agree on a compromise here. My guests, Andrew Curry, Robert Morningstar, Ron Gerbron, Keith Morgan, Kintia Lurking. So, uh, Andrew, continue. Yeah, so what I noticed, Richard, is I was only looking up for one box, as I remembered this from a show we did you know, a few years back and seeing this very weird texture in the sky. Now, look, these are commercial artists. They are tasked with coming up with colorful uh, dis- you know, uh, imagery to get kids to nag at their parents to buy the models. <laughs> but, Richard, I think these models are – you and I have discussed this. These models are very much geared towards adults because it's adults that mostly build them with their sons or daughters or what have you these days. 
And I, you know, it's just interesting that we have this this hazy, bat ripped up sort of um, gossamer background that's just you know you know refracting light artistically. And then we finally, in about I believe it was 2019, we get this uh, version that's just back to black. And then I found two more versions. This some um, company called Dragon. I can't remember if they were Japanese, but here's one that again shows a very Oh, by the way, and that's another thing with these earlier uh, boxes that have these, you know, the first lunar landing model kit. The moon is very colorful. It's just, it's beautiful. Like, you know, there's these subtle colors going, yellows and these greens and even hints of blue in the shadow. It's very beautiful. But on this box, this Apollo 11, Apollo 11 lunar landing from a Dragon Edition, 50th anniversary, it's really boring. It's back to black. Then I found another one. So it's a, a Japanese company called Oshima, and it's the Apollo Lunar Module Eagle 8. And it is blue for the background, and the landscape of the moon is absolutely just, you know, just splashed with color. And this, again, reminds and me. And look at the sky. I know. That's not a dead black vacuum sky. That's Alan Bean, you know, depicting yeah. the ancient lunar domes that he saw with the Conrad uh, that is picked, picked much more by um, uh, Leonov, Alexei Leonov, the, the Russian cosmonaut who never went to the moon, but he obviously talked to the Apollo astronauts, and he painted a picture. I showed it a couple of weeks ago. It's obvious that there's a damn dome sticking halfway up over the horizon just below the Earth, which is in deep black space. And below that, you can see the dome, then you see this colorful moon, and then in front of the astronaut, the cosmonaut, uh, obviously, in, in Leonov's uh, painting, you can see the various Soviet spacecraft that had landed at various times beginning in 1959 on the lunar surface. And behind him and them is a dome. Yeah, and again, I'll come back to the uh, perspective or the prerogative or the direction for a commercial artist is to come up with candy colored you know colorful things that that can sell but richard i would use a black background and make that spaceship pop more like that's just a better you know sort of artistic decision so in this japanese version it's literally like an alabine painting like the artist was looking at alabine's paintings because there's a shredded sky you can actually see the earth hazed out and even a, a slight tear where you see the earth a little more clear. So is this messaging or is this just artistic? Sure, there's subtlety in there. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I want to come down to my last three images on this poster. Again, this is, I believe, all Japanese. And what struck me about the one on the far left is look at the color of the moon. Yeah. This is exact That's the glass. Yeah, that's Robert's, um, you know, True Colors of the Moon image right there. And then the next yeah. Well, it's images... also the lacrosse colors. Yes. And the, uh, yeah, definitely the lacrosse colors. As well as, by the way, when you look at the full moon from the Chang spacecraft, they look like that. That's how I know the Chinese are telling us the truth. And just don't talk about it. Yeah. Well, this, again, this Japanese com company called, well, this, yeah, the, the last two are from a company called Tamiya ta or Tamiya and again the 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 landscape or the moonscape is painted unbelievably you know colorful look at that now I want uh -huh. yeah it's 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 stunning so while you're mm -hmm. looking at that I want to read a little bit about this company this won't take long this is very brief this last uh, model company that did these incredible colors so 
Tamiya was incorporated uh, or is, is a Japanese manufacturer of plastic model kits, radio control cars, battery and solar powered educational models, sailboat models, acrylic and enamel model paints, and various modeling tools and supplies. The company was founded by Yoshio Tamiya in Shizuka, Japan in 1946. Oh my. Very, yeah, let me read a little mm. more. The company was founded in 1946 as Tamiya Shoji and Company by Yoshio Tamiya. Uh, it was a sawmill and lumber supply company with a high availability of wood. The timber company's wood products division, founded in 1947, was also producing wooden models of ships and airplanes, which later became the company's foundation. In 1953, they decided to stop the sale of architectural lumber and focus solely on model making. And if you go through their history, it's in very what, interesting. In, in what year, 63? 53. 1953. Okay. Yeah. They have been involved in creating parts for cell phones, and they, they have held previous world records. Let me read this really quickly. It's very interesting. Um, Guinness World Records. Tamiya radio-controlled models previously held two Guinness World Records, both for distances traveled. Greatest distance by a radio-controlled model car on one, of, on one set of batteries, 23.7 miles by, by David Stevens of Australia, Temple Stowe Flat track racing club australia in, in the 20th of april 2013 the car you oh, i don't need to read the rest of that but it basically uh the greatest distance by a radio here's another one the greatest wow. distance by a radio control model car in 24 so hours the company morphed from architectural wood product into model making yeah of all yeah, kinds it's, yeah it's it's an extra it's you got to wonder what these companies are up to i mean they have really branched out and and you know is there messaging here or is this just artists an artist fancy going real colorful with the moon and with the sky over the moon i don't know it's 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 intriguing but i know we got to move along here so i need to move back to my uh well here we are let me just sorry i got to clean this up and we're gonna go uh i'm gonna richard I'm, i might pass by number four for now if okay. that's okay yeah, and I want to go to number five. You guys kind of got me going, especially you, Richard. I, I had to do this. So I call this Mysterious Moon. Now, these are – so if you go to number five, this is from your lacrosse uh, visible camera lunar south pole um, color-saturated um, mm-hmm. imagery. And I did a little couple little clippings because this whole little sort of ge- geometric area reminded me of something. I went, oh, my gosh, this is from Jack Kirby. This is from Fantastic Four. So I did a little um, comparison. So this is a panel from um, January the 3rd, 1963. And it's a, basically uh, the Fantastic Four have – they found some sort of power source in an asteroid that had crashed into Siberia. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And we're able to use this material <laughs> to power up their spaceship. Can anybody the say and, Tunguska? Uh, exactly. <laughs> let, let, me read you the, let me read you the panel as they're landing in this um, cratered – ancient city moments later as the great ship slowly descends to the moon's surface we did it the energy pile worked we're landing smack in the center of the mysterious blue area (laughs) and there's that's that's classic and there's the reason it photographs blue there's a long dead city below us the remains of ancient civilization god man is that is so much on the nose that is just crazy I know we're running out of time, but I want to read to you. No, no, we got 20 minutes. Come on. Okay, this is from a, a website called uh, MarvelGenesis.com, and it looks like like a, a Marvel fan fan 
you know, website. And this, oh, I just went away from it. This, um, so oh. Kirby was downloading something from someone from somewhere in 1963. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 amazing. So this this fantastic the, the, where this this panel comes from. It's called uh, Mystery on the Moon: The Fantastic Four. Uh, they read they they meet the Red Ghost. So there's this um uh, a Russian thing going on where they're there's basically a a Russian um, supervillain thing or whatever he is. And they're kind of racing to the moon, the Fantastic Four and and this particular character. And for those who are real uh, Fantastic Four geeks, if I got that wrong, then you can smack me down. (laughs) But anyways, I'll I'll read you this. After last issue's disappointing turn, this comic is crammed so full of ideas that you wonder why it isn't regarded as more of a classic than it is. Um, for instance, for the first time since the first issue of Fantastic Four, we once again get a sense of our of the four as determined explorers. And Kirby did that a lot. A lot of his characters were, were explorers, set on conquering new heights and discovering the unknown just because they can. Reed tells us of a meteor from outer space that recently crashed in Siberia, has been harvested as a new source of fuel, and which suddenly makes space exploration possible again in a way that it hadn't been before. In any other comic, this might have been the story, but here it's just one more intriguing detail in a lunar sea of ideas. However, this was during the height of the space race, so when the Fantastic Four prepare a mission to the moon, we shouldn't be surprised to see a parallel endeavor entering into by the Soviets. Strangely, scientist Ivan Kragoff is planning his launch not with fellow humans, but with three apes whom he has painstakingly trained. Then he goes over uh, what the apes do, and I won't get into that. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let me go through it here. One last bit. One of the things that makes this issue such a gem is the sense of mystery and wonder that's conveyed in every page. When the Fantastic Four rocketed into space in their very first issue in 1961, the original intent was a flight to the moon. However, this was changed in the finished comic to a vague trip, quote, to the stars, unquote, because Stan Lee figured that by the time the issue saw print, mankind might have already achieved such a thing, making the first issue immediately outdated. <laughs> yeah, do you know? More. Do you know that I've got a conversation, I think it's in Playboy, between Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke um, after the you know, publication of 2001, the film and then Arthur's novel, and their biggest concern in this conversation, which somehow Playboy Hefner got them to put on the record, was that their whole movie would be upstaged by yeah. a real E.T. landing sometime in the next few years. Well, Richard, again, we're talking comic books here, but I, let me finish this off. Think for a moment about what that means, that the advances in space exploration were so exciting to the public consciousness that new events seem to spring forth with dizzying speed. But a year and a half later, we still hadn't reached the moon and wouldn't for another six years after that. So Stan felt comfortable again with the idea. And why shouldn't he? It may seem blasé to us now, but in a time of such unknowns, the idea of an extraterrestrial object, a new celestial landscape, being so close must have been fascinating. What could be found there? Mm. Who might live there? H.G. Wells' 1901 novel, The First Men on the Moon, found great success in these tantalizing Mm -hmm. questions. And it should be no surprise that a big-budget motion picture adapted by quarter-mass creator Nigel Keane would hit theaters just a year after this comic came out. Now, I want to quickly go back to my last post, or the poster uh, 
I had. Uh, where am I? I'm in the wrong thing here. Um, number me, three? Uh, number... The Chinese number, one? No, number six. I want to go to number six. Number six, yeah. The oh, Watchers yeah. appear. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the now, Watchers. This is, yeah, this is very interesting, Richard, because and it just comes <clears throat> up with so much of what you talk about. Is there somebody interfering with us? And let me read you this last little bit. The Red Ghost and his Super 8s may have faded into obscurity, but an impressive number of other concepts were introduced in this issue. This is the Watcher Appears. Um, the blue area of the moon with an atmosphere all of its own, does that not sound familiar, mm-hmm. is seen to house the remains of a long-dead civilization and years later would become the new home of yet another exotic race. Most notably, however, the Fantastic Four first meet the Watcher member of an immeasurably long-lived race that has been witnessing and recording the myriad pockets of the universe for eons, sworn never to interfere. A reading limited only to a perspective of geek culture could see this as the progenitor of Star, Star Trek's yeah, prime, prime directive. directive. Yes. Yep, but it's so much more than that. The member of the Fantastic <clears throat> Four may have been to other worlds when abducted by this or that alien dictator, but it's notable that when we first see the Force successfully exploring an uncharted world of their own volition, we also get an iconic living reminder of the ideal of self-determination. Okay, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt. Okay, because are you aware that there is mainstream stories coming out of Ukraine, out of the astronomical community in Ukraine, talking about incredible UFO activity across Ukraine? right now during the war oh <laughs> published in peer-reviewed journals oh well, yeah they're arguing about whose drones they are well i'm not this, saying that's what they are but yes there's lots of press about it you're right well this is why i want to come back and finish my presentation on number four so robert this is Please. the one so it's yeah. as above so beside and this is something I, i'm gonna richard i'm gonna let you describe it you and robert because you're going to do it way more eloquently than me. And I think we've heard enough no, 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 of my no, no, voice. No, 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 no. Keep going, keep going. Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> you saw it. You know, I only gave you the Chinese characters. You saw it first. Yeah. Well, I mean, this goes, again, right back to who are these people, gods, watchers, whatever. You know, what, what is this? And, uh, of course, you know. We, well, we hang on, hang on. We, we have two problems. I'm looking at ancient, ancient, ancient archaeology. Mm. Then the question is, are the same guys, the Krell types that I'm talking about, are they still around? Or right. are their descendants still around? Or more super advanced versions of the family, which we're going to talk about tomorrow night in relation to the monarchy and the royal family and the historical background of all that. Are they somehow here and are they interfering and then we saw this stuff in Jezero Crater where you've got mirror images of the Giza geometry on the plateau uh, on, on Mars as well as in Jezero, and yet they're backwards. Like there's some demarcation of something radically changed in the history of the solar system. And Giza, the geometry of Giza, which is supposed to be the geometry of the Orion Belt stars, is portrayed side by side on a Giza scale and a much bigger scale, but the much bigger scale, which looks much older, is backwards. Yeah, and then what I did 
is I began to just sketch lines because as I boxed out these forms, they, what, what I, I too believe they're, they're structures, they're buildings, they're pyramids uh, to, to my eye. And I began to like just brush, well, not brush, but I was using a pen or some, some kind of calligraphic thing. And I sent it to Robert. He says, are you learning Chinese? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So, um, Robert, you want to take it from there? Yeah, he, he did some basic strokes and he drew some radicals. Radicals are the fundamental characters that compose a Chinese word. So uh, he drew the radical for man, the walking man. There's another one called the standing man. So he drew the, the walking man and then he do it, drew another stroke between his legs. And it reminded me of the Tai Chi symbol which is uh, a standing man, legs apart, arms out, as if saying, it was this big. But when you put that, <laughs> when you put that, that stroke that in the middle, between the legs, it means supreme. So in Tai Chi, it means supreme ultimate. And the supreme part is supremely big. And it's actually a walking man with, with a penis, his erection, as it was explained to me by a professor from Columbia University. So I was uh, quite amazed, and your calligraphy is uh, very beautiful. So if the meta-metaphor, if we lift it from the homocentric to a cultural civilization, big, big picture, are we looking at supreme culture, civilization, beings who represent what was done here half a billion years ago? I think it's possible, but also you mentioned when I made this uh, statement the first time that it reminded you of Osiris because yes. Osiris had his member separated exactly. from him when he was And if I would, if you just indulge me with a little bit of informative interruption, I'd like to go <laughs> back to the boxes. Something that all of us missed except me. In the first three boxes of the models, the snap tight the monogram, and the Ravel. Okay. There is a silver monolith behind the astronaut on the left. And it is something that I have seen in real photographs of Copernicus. That object that I'm calling a silver monolith or a tower, there is a photograph of Copernicus crater showing a translucent slab of okay uh, let me let me let me tell you what this is in the actual apollo 11 mission which okay. is what this is supposed to depict that is a panel of aluminized foil that was unrolled and stuck in the ground to be exposed during the entire uh time that the apollo 11 lunar module spent on the surface and then they stowed it they brought it on board and stowed it to bring back to earth it was designed to capture nuclei from the solar wind on right. the moon and then analyze it when it got back to earth but it sure does look like an aluminum version of arthur yes. clark's monolith sure yes but also more importantly it is identical in proportion to a very rare photograph that shows copernicus crater with a towering slab of what i would call lucite because you can see right through it and it's uh, right okay. angled. Okay, after the show, you will send me the photo, right? All right. But anyway, that's uh, a very interesting thing. Okay, Andrew, back to you. Yeah, well, Richard, the, the, again, 
you know, my interpretation is, is intuitive. It's through an artist's eyes and, and through form, right? And, and what I see repeatedly is, as you say, form follows function. I see elegant design everywhere in our society. Yeah, it's smashed. It's eroded. But it's there. The underlying I, design principle yeah. stands out. Yes, it it's does. A, it's, and, it, it's a mega pattern. Yeah. And, and it's and so I, big that the mainstream guys have said, oh, it's got to be natural because nothing that big could be artificial because they don't think big enough. They're still hiding and, and under their beds. Yeah, exactly. And and then the, the even more strange implication of this backwards – or this – sorry, not backwards. This reverse Giza plateau representation is uh, – can you explain it to the listeners, Richard, what well, this Well, when I saw that, my intuition – and again, remember, Einstein said all science begins in wonder. You start out with imagination. You start out with the right brain, and then you try to check it with the left brain metonymic you know, test, 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 test. But if you don't have the imagination to see the big picture, your science is, is pointless. It's boring. It's scolded. It, it never gets it – never, it never flies. So when I saw this, I thought, okay, why would someone build big, big ancient stuff that's the mirror geometry of what we know on the Giza Plateau – in the way we see the sky, Orion, we know somehow Orion, the Orion complex, Osiris, Isis, Set, that whole thing is somehow critical to our human history. And then there's the whole concept of the Nephilim, which is merely a Hebraic translation of, the, you know, the, 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 the giants were the Nephilim. So um, that all goes back to Orion. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, why would it be mirror reversed on a totally different scale? And the only thing that came to me was, okay, that's when someone with a technology that totally mind boggles anybody in our time that tries to figure it out, put us in a bubble in the phantom zone. That's when we were isolated, when we were kicked out of the metaphorical Garden of Eden, which was not in somewhere in the Middle East. It was the galaxy. The universe, we were compartmentalized, put in a bubble prison to work our way out of after we transcended whatever horrible sin we committed before all this happened. And that was the rush of insight that I had. And of course, the next few years have been spent trying to calibrate and check and test and, and figure out if it's real. And Richard, what if the progenitors, as you said, descendants or the remnants of, of their, you know, the original builders, if they're stuck with us, <laughs> right here with us? What do you mean looking stuck? Glass? What do you mean Go stuck? Go ahead, Ron. Well, in the bubble, like if it, if you like, like saying that you know we committed the great sin. I mean, it it could have been a fight. Bigger than us, you know what I mean? Well, it could have just... been the war. Yeah. Remember, the war Maybe destroyed it... peoples and planets and destroyed the solar system, and that's why all the stuff on the moon is in horrible condition, and NASA could get away about lying about it for decades because to most people, it's unrecognizable from just random cratering unless you see the underlying mega design pattern. Exactly. And Ron, you were saying the, something. The metastructure. Yeah, I just thought through the looking glass, them or some of them, whoever those might be, uh, on the same side of the looking glass as us. 
and it really, um, they wouldn't like being here. And the ones on the other side wouldn't know what to do. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really feels like that kind of a duality. It's, uh, it, that shows up all over the place. That book that I hate so much about the breakdown of the bicameral mind. I mean, he the guy from uh, I give him this. He, yeah, he does talk about he does talk about uh, that problem with reverse visualization. See, I well, keep thinking guys, I, I, I keep thinking of sorry, Andrew, I keep thinking of John yeah. David Oates and his whole reverse speech. And oh. I spent a lot of time with, with, with Oates in California at his house and I said to him mm-hmm. one day, What if we're looking at two time differentials, two dimensions, and what you're hearing is basically the other dimension leaking through at a different time rate, so it's backward relative to our time stream but it's merely at a different rate between the two time streams. It's like being on two trains, you know, the Einstein experiment, two trains in a train station, one moving faster than the other, which one is moving, which one is stationary. They're both moving. Well, it also gives you a, you know, it makes you wonder what a snow globe is all about. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. True. Okay, we've got we've got basically um, uh, two minutes here. Um, how do we wrap this up? I'm looking at these three missions. One tumbling in space tonight that they can't seem to control because it could it could blow the doors off. Not only what's on the moon, but the physics. Did I tell you about the atomic clock on board? that is probably telling bizarre wild time because of what it's doing in space that it shouldn't be doing that we're not supposed to know about. And then there's the Denuri mission, which is quietly slipping under the radar. And it seems to be uh, moving along very quietly, but nobody wants to talk about it. And then we have the Artemis mission, which can't seem to get off the ground. And one has to wonder, um, is it because because when it gets there with those 11 incredible cameras, there's going to be hell to pay to try to keep it secret, and someone is trying to delay for as long as possible a of reckoning. And on that note, well, I hope everybody followed along for the ride tonight because it did get kind of wild and woolly. We even had coyotes chiming in with time hacks. How many shows do that live on the air? So tomorrow night, we're going to be tackling the conundrum of the royal family, the monarchy, Queen Elizabeth's passing, and King Charles. And is Charles going to be the guy who brings us disclosure? Again, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. See you tomorrow night.